Good morning and a happy Tuesday to you folks. It is a fabulous day and I am going to share some energy I got this morning. Woke up, opened my inbox and found this email. Jason, I am grateful for my two children, my wife and partner, and this house for standing another year. I'm grateful for second chances. I'm grateful for the time I have with my parents, and I'm grateful for the technology that keeps me alive daily. And of course, thank you and Sterling for being a voice when we need it more than ever in the oil and gas industry. Ladies and gentlemen, don't get caught up on energy and behaviors you can't control Focus on yourself, focus on what you're grateful for, and go ahead and send out an email to somebody just like someone did for me this morning. What a great way to start my day, getting some positive news that affects me and impacts me. And folks, go out and make it an awesome Tuesday. Let's get this party started. It's time to play hard, work hard. Now, let's play hard. Morning and a happy Monday to you folks. It is a fabulous Monday here in OKC. This is Oklahoma City. Jason Spees with you here with the Crude Life Live and Local on Location Out. We are in Oklahoma City getting ready for our cross-promotional podcast. That's what we're calling it today, our cross-promotional podcast with Ken Lavin and Matt Hill with Talkin' Energy Show. We're going to talk about all kinds of different things happening in the world of energy. And then after that, we'll be heading down to the Shale Energy Resources Trade Show and Conference happening this Wednesday and Thursday down in Midland, Texas. Of course, there's a whole week of activities happening if you'd like to be a part of it. Still time. Still time to be a part of it. Happened Thursday. What is it? Thursday? Wednesday? Tuesday. There we go. I'm, I'm working backwards here, folks. Boy. You know the trip is going well when you start working backwards at the beginning of the week. Oh, boy, you can't make that up, can you? All right, we'll take a look at who we have coming up here on Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. That's how we're going to kind of do things here. Ron Gusick with Liberty Oilfield Services, Midland Mayor Patrick Payton, Adam Perkins of Permian Basin Association of Pipeliners, Derek Clark with the Permian Basin Association of Pipeliners, of course, Meyer Vargas, with Amigo Pipe and Equipment, will be guest co-host with Midland Mayor Patrick Payton, as well as Kent Kirkhammer to talk about Gorilla Jack. And then our main event, Jim Wright, the Texas Railroad Commission, plus a couple special guests, Krista Escamilla with PBS's Basin Life and the Permian Perspective Podcast, and Chris Moore, the voice of West Texas. She'll be doing the moderation and the continuation and the advancement of the discussion with the Real Oilfield Women of the South, a pilot program that we have going until our release month of August. More details to come on that, folks, but this week we'll be down at the Midland Horseshoe Pavilion. I mentioned the Permian Basin Association of Pipeliners. That's what we're going to do today, folks. We were down in the Permian for the annual cook-off that they have there and I believe it was the sixth annual let me go off my memory hill real quick yep we're gonna call it the sixth annual Permian Basin Pipeliners cook-off and we interviewed a whole bunch of different characters and 
all kinds of different people that were a part of it, people that were in there networking. So that's what we're going to bring for you today is some interviews that we've done at the Permian Basin Association of Pipeliners annual cook-off. That's coming up right now. Welcome back to The Crude Life. Play hard, work hard. This is Sean Forbes with TeamForbes.com and OGDirectory.com. I have Jason Spies here as my co-host. And we also have Israel Aguirre here with TRC Construction. How are you doing? Uh, Pretty good. Pretty good. How are you doing? I'm good. We're here at the Permian Basin Association of Pipeliners annual cook-off. And there's been a lot of amazing barbecue here today. There's been a lot of amazing barbecue, and uh, I'm glad you mentioned that. The uh, Pipeliners Association, that's exactly where I'm from. I'm a pipeliner by trade, and a pipeliner is how I'll probably die. <laughs> <laughs> well, you started out as a welder in your I, career. I am. I, uh, by trade, I am a welder. Um, I broke out uh, 12 years ago, um, now moved up to a uh, general superintendent. Now I'm an operations manager at TRC, and I'm proud to say that uh, a lot of people get the opportunity but don't actually advance at it and and you know it's just it is what it is you know and I, now i'm here i'm taking it taking about i'm taking the bull i'm grabbing the horns by the bull the bull by the horns there you go something <laughs> like that how'd you get to be a welder um that's so it's a, a very difficult job for nowadays it for is a kid to do after high school it is uh, uh so I, I i actually took welding in high school you did uh yes reduced to it in high school yes Great. Um, okay. so my 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 background is that uh my dad is a carpenter and so i took wood shop i just thought it would be easier easy yeah. a you know okay, so you got some trade in the family uh yes yeah. uh and the following year uh the the teacher uh, said hey uh you should try metal workshop you know the following year and i did uh, i liked it um mr Clantonhoff introduced me to a lot of cool stuff you know i wanted to advance in the welding trade and, and i did you know i came out here and that, and that's pretty easy to do here in the in the in west texas in the Permian basin you know we have a lot of uh, a lot of welders out here so it's pretty easy to do i i say that but there was a lot of good help that i had uh Ernest Galindo is well-respected guy in the area. Uh, William Mosby, another well-respected gentleman that worked for BJB. Uh, so I had a lot of help moving up, and I and I do appreciate you know how people can just help people, you know, and, that, and that's what we're all about. And oil, an oil field, and oil community, people helping people. You know, these uh, these events, these we we look around, and it's just to us, it's just cookouts and having fun and all that but it's networking it's we're helping each other people exactly know people exactly to them about your services like so tell us what you guys do uh trc we we specialize in the permian basin we specialize in pipeline and facility work from grassroots all the way up turnkey you know yeah we just do all the construction even even maintenance you know ili we do we do things like that um dave sanders he was with us uh here at this tent um, and he specializes in I and E. So, you know, long story short, we do a little bit of everything in construction. Uh, nothing too big, nothing too small for TRC. Do you build homes. We we can build homes. No kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just wondering with a name like TRC Construction, have you ever gotten somebody say, "Do do do do"? You build homes. <laughs> well, and I'm glad you mentioned that. Um, so, I really am glad you mentioned that. We in, in this in this community, you know, you have a lot of a lot of corporate and a lot of mom and pop. And, and what I like about TRC, so when I was trying to venture out, 
with TRC, the, the thing that stood out the most that it's a family that owns TRC is, is Terry and Rose Carter. I think that's what TRC stands for, but they came with I some other that. slogan that I'm not going to bring up, you yeah. know, uh, trust and whatever they said. It's, it's Terry and Rose Carter. That's what I say. Um, but with that said, you know, um, it, it, it's a corporation that you can trust, you know, uh, the, the bigger the bigger people in, in the field can can trust TRC because of their background but also the the, the smaller people and I'm gonna point out myself can trust TRC because it's a family corporation um, the home the home office is out of Farmington and we also have a division out of uh, Johnstown uh, Colorado and and again like I mentioned um, um, Dave Sanders, he's out of Hobbs, and, and Carlos Jaramillo and myself, we're out of West Texas, which is the Permian Division out of Midland. Yeah. So um, there again, we're just all over the place, just ready to serve and, and help anybody in our community. But what types of projects would you say you guys really excel at? Would it be like compressor stations or? So yeah, we've done we've done uh, um, we've done addition we've done add-ons to compressor stations. We've built full-on compressor stations we've done we've done main line we've done you know flow lines it's just when when you're in my position um and you know a lot of people you don't turn down anything because you know somebody that can get it done and get it done right um and with my background my, myself i'm a cwi also so after mm -hmm. welding you know after i got out you of have welding, your api 1169 i got my api 1169 <laughs> i got boy. my nace level one and yeah. um i'm a I've also got my license to practice out of New Mexico. And you're a project manager, too. So I that a says a manager, lot about yeah. the fact that you're managing projects that you know how the work should be done. Right, exactly. And, and that's why I, I, I again, I, I just wanted to step up to the plate because uh, myself being from the field, starting from moving skids around, moving all the way up to management, I was very proud of that, and, and I wanted not to only do the work, but do it very well and efficient and, and, and turn in the good quality work that everybody wants, you know. Um, uh, you, you mentioned earlier, you know, do you build homes? Uh, my dad did, you know, and uh, and when you're, you're working for builders, they want a good quality product. So my background, it doesn't matter if you're building furniture or, or doing pipelines or building homes. Um, when you want a good quality product, you know, you can get it done whenever you want to and that's where we're at and you do so, it right yeah we want to do a good quality product and and again uh one my biggest slogan is probably price is what you pay and value is what you get eh, yeah sometimes but you know still value's got to be always there. you pay what you get for exactly yeah you get, the you get what you there. pay for i think i've had maybe five glasses of wine already is that it <laughs> maybe <laughs> that's six. all we've counted. maybe Jason's given me maybe six. We're, we have tallies going. <laughs> we, we, we actually stopped. You get what you pay for, definitely. So there's a, a value to level of service. Exactly. And yeah, exactly. the quality of the people who are doing the work and your right. equipment and everything. It's not just lowest price. It's best value for right, everything. Right, right. exactly. And, that, and, that, and then again, uh, going back to the whole family values of TRC, that's why I wanted to be a part of this uh this projection of family values because I like for the for the customer to call me on my personal cell phone and say hey this is wrong or hey this is right or, hey excellent job that's what I want you know you want to well, solve their problems exactly okay. exactly one of the things that small business right now is excelling in mm -hmm. two two things we're going to talk about here I'm, I, okay one I want to talk about the gig economy that whole customer service thing and the second one is if I lose my train of thought just just remind me welders pipe fitters, 
and plumbers, okay? <laughs> Just remind me of that because that was... That's a highly sought-out skill. <laughs> well, yes. okay, we'll start with that. So the first year that I was doing oil and gas reporting, it became very clear to me, at least in the Bakken, because North Dakota, you have to be certified by the state of North Dakota to be a welder, pipe fitter, or a plumber. Right. Or electrician. Sorry, electrician. Electrician. Mm -hmm. Therefore, we called them the deities and the demigods <laughs> of the Bakken because these people were sought out. Like, there was a, there was an uh, electric company we interviewed that was out of Fargo. Right. On the east side, which has no oil and gas activity. Mm -hmm. They stopped sending people to the western side of the state because those guys would go out for dinner mm -hmm. and get hired during dinner for right. twice as much money as they were right. making. But here's the kick. The electric company back in Fargo had to hire them when they came back there you because go. there was no other electricians <laughs> around. So you had electricians, you had pipe fitters and welders. They really could write their own ticket right. for a lot of different reasons. Yet it was very difficult to get a high school kid to understand the opportunity behind the trade skills, the two-year degrees, if you will. How right. did you get into it? I mean, you mentioned high school, but what advice would you have for kids and et cetera? Because that is a direction that's a legitimate direction. If people want to make a good living, mm. raise a family. Right. Don't go to college. You know, learn a, a trade. Right. And what should that trade be? Yeah. Well, that, that that's a very good question. You know, and, and in my situation, um, I never even thought of even coming to the oil field. Again, like I said, my, my father was, was a framer. You know, he was in res residential construction. So I, that wasn't even a thought for me or to me. But anyway, um, so why did I get into the oil field? You know, or how? A, a lot of people were, were just going in that direction, you know. And, and uh, the, reason, the reason or how I, I, I took that dive was that... Uh, there was a there was a winter time that was really slow for framers and i was a framer you know right out of high school i, di I didn't jump right into the oil field i was a framer i built houses with my dad you know and all that good stuff um, but it was a there was that well, how year. did you transition from you know Where home construction that? To uh, that was i want to say that was uh between nine and twelve no that was that was before 2008 uh oh, it was yeah okay in 2008 is when i got into the oil field okay because I, I i got in around 10. And it's a, actually a funny story. That I'm glad you mentioned that. Uh, I followed a group of welders. They're on Loop 250 in Midland, and I followed them. And they, they, I followed them all the way to the shop, and I asked them for for a job. And they said, "Well, hey, do, you, do what do you know how to do?" And I told them everything I knew how to do: build a house, you know, roofs, pitches, angles, all that. Uh, nothing to do with the oil field, but the guy saw that that I had a background in mathematics, and he gave me an an opportunity. And when I saw what he was doing, welding. Um, I like you pay how much to do what you know I did that in high school you know and for free and for a grade you know so uh, you know the transition was pretty easy I think that I think that if you're you're hungry and I'm not talking about the literal hunger but I'm talking about hungry to 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 grow in this industry to be ambitious exactly. and you're motivated yeah, you can you know yeah. and, and I'm gonna go back to my path you know um, I, I, I broke out welding I was a welder's helper I became a foreman and then I I went out to welding and and after that, you know, it was all downhill. It was twelve years, twelve years worth of uh, twelve years worth of welding, and then I became a CWI. Uh, after becoming getting my CWI, um, hey, why stop there? Let's go get my eleven sixty nine. Why stop there? Let's go get my nace. 
and and now uh, Carlos Jaramillo, my partner out here in West Texas, he's uh, he's he's. I'm, I'm probably gonna sound cliche. You crushing? Here. Are you crushing on him right uh, now? No, no, <laughs> it, it's a little bit of a bromance, but he's an awesome, awesome project manager. Um, like a mentor. Yeah, and he, he's just awesome how he puts yeah. his verbiages together on contracts and stuff like that. And so now, here I am striving for even more. So back to your question. I know I kind of got off topic there, but. Um, Back to your we question. We never do that here. Oh, no, never. <laughs> never. never. Uh, back to your question. Uh, why? You know, why? I mean, what is the why? You know, uh, a good friend of mine, uh, Melissa Armandares, we worked together for years and years. She said, uh, when you when you go visit somebody's tombstone, there's that, that year when you're born, and then that dash. The dash. And then the year what that happens? you die. What happened with, in that dash? Right. And she asked yeah. me, what does that dash mean to you? And that really hit me. And I was like... I don't know if I can cuss on this podcast, but I'm like, what a bitch. She got me thinking, you know? So no, it's because it's facts. Yeah, right? and it is. And, it yeah. is and, that, and that's what got me striving to push more. Um, but also, you know, also to top it all off, it was, a, it was easier in my situation because my wife is also in the oil and gas business. No, and talk about that. You said your, fam- your whole family Our, is in- involved in oil and gas. My whole family. My, my father-in-law, Antonio Leva, is a general superintendent for Salisbury. Uh, my wife is a general manager for Freeman, Freeman Digahoe, which is a JMAC uh, company. Okay. Um, uh, Mario uh, worked. Mario Ronquillo worked years and years for 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 Holloman. Um, we just have family all over the place. I got, I got a brother-in-law named Leo Brito. <laughs> He's a welding boss at RAC Ventures. Uh, yeah, go figure, right? We're all welders. Uh, my brother-in-law, my other brother-in-law, my, my wife's sister, his name is Sergio Leva, and he's, I don't know what he does. He does some kind of big old, big wig kind of stuff over there at, uh, at um, oh, it starts with the V. I can't think of the name. But anyway, we're all in the same business. But weld- welders, when people say welders, I don't know if welders get the credibility that they should because, you know, you're like, oh, I just weld stuff. But when you're working on oil and gas projects and pipelines and you know, the, the risk associated with getting those welds right, like, that's pretty extreme, It's a right? big deal. It's a big deal. And so, you know, being a welder, like, they can make really good money. Yeah, exactly. But you also have to have the skill. <coughs> you, you do. Um, because so there's, there's a thing called x-ray. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. And when yeah. people x-ray your welds and you're not 100% on those welds, <laughs> Then you're failing. You're failing at your job. Now you have to redo that weld. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's your like, livelihood. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. so it's not like you're failing yourself as a welder, but you're failing your company and you're costing everyone money. Yeah. So yeah. it's a highly sought after skill. So uh, that's another that's another good topic that I'm, I've lived in. You know, uh, uh, there was this inspector uh, that I worked for at Encana, and he said uh, the x-ray truck showed up, right? They're about to shoot all of our x-rays. And, uh, and he said, all right, guys, we're about to find out if you guys are some welding motherfuckers or some motherfuckers <laughs> welding. Uh, excuse my language, but yeah. that's what he said. Um, <laughs> and, you know, you, you learn throughout the years out there in the field, and, and it's very true. You know, have you have all these codes and guidelines. You have API uh, 1104. You have, uh, and, and I might be mistaken, but a long time ago, you had 1107 rehab, um, B313 normal, B313 severe. <laughs> You, you know you have all these guidelines that welders need to uh need to need to follow you know and and so long story short 
<laughs> What's up, Big Daddy? Oh, he's, getting just, some, he's getting some love right now. I just had someone. somebody give me a big old smooch on the cheek. <laughs> uh, but you know, and, and uh, this question, this question came up earlier. Hey, how much does it cost to break out? Yeah. And, you know, you're you're probably looking at about a good eighty thousand dollars just to get the basics of what you need. But but that that you can't get that. That's a skill. There's no price for a skill. Right. And, and not only that, but let's move for let's move let's move five years down the line. If I make a well or you make a well down the line, and and let's say it passed X-ray and it passed hydro you know hydrostatic testing, even further on down the line, let's say there's a neighborhood you know being built around this pipeline. Class and, five pipeline. Exactly. Yeah. And and now it becomes a risk to everybody. You know, or or to us it's not a risk, but. But in this neighborhood, they're like they're worried about this pipeline. So that's why that's why inspection is so strenuous, and that's one of the reasons why I move forward into into the uh, inspection aspect of things because I again I want to turn in a good solid product that I'm good and and I can I, I'm not miss any sleepover and I'm proud of you know at the end of the day. So what I'm hearing is that you guys actually kind of work with the regulators and the inspectors as opposed to against them. Exactly, exactly. Which is a really important thing in today's day and age because some yes. people like to put a big middle finger on their work. Oh, yes, <laughs> absolutely. Uh, I'd like to bring up New Mexico and into this. Oh. <laughs> uh, we're, we're on a live podcast right now. and We just got inspected <laughs> by an in- inspector, and he said that we are violating uh, hotness. That, he said we're too hot the- and we need to go. <laughs> Do you want to know actually a true story? So when I, when I went out to Dickinson, <laughs> keep in mind, I, I came unannounced. Okay. Okay. Out in the Bakken oil field. And we all know the good old boys are real. Right, right, okay? right. When you got the police coming to your podcast at your food truck to, sh- to check permits that don't exist three times in a week, <laughs> you know somebody's targeted you. So that's what I thought was <laughs> happening right now. I'm yeah. like, oh, God, I'm in flashbacks. Who's shutting me down because I didn't check with the right person? I before. think they just want to be interviewed. And I we didn't so even too. ask that. No, they were cool <laughs> yeah. about it. I, but I had these flashbacks like, oh, God, am I going to jail again? That no, but they did comment on your um, heavyweight belt here. Talk about that. The heavyweight belt, the Earth's Championship belt. So you'll get a kick out of this here. So what this is here is we entered into an environmental tournament. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I'm, I'm in the day and age where we're living in a day of crazy. Mm-hmm. So we got to approach crazy with crazy. Right, right, right. So I thought, you know what? We're going to enter this environmental tournament by saying that the oil and gas industry is the leader in the environmental movement. Mm-hmm. And I got a lot of facts to back it up. Right. And I did. But then I also said two things. Number one, renewables ain't doable without fossil fuelable. So we had a nice little rhyme and a chant. Yeah. But the main event was that cell phones are the most dangerous polluter on the planet right now. And that caught everyone's attention. So oil and gas kind of just kind of went by the wayside. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But when you think about it, okay, so the rare earth minerals behind uh, cell phones... And number two, you got the manufacturing. And right. number three, you got the data centers, actually. So every time somebody tweets or texts, you're actually, hey, global warming, pal, whatever, pal. <laughs> so, you know, while well, you're drinking your Keurig and on your cell phone, Mr. Environmentalist. Right. Right. There you go, hypocrite. So we went in with that, and we won. Yeah. Right. So what I did is we said, well, we're going to get a belt then. And I got my cousin actually trains, uh, like, Rick Rude, Vader. His name's Brad Rangins. He was a wrestler. 
So we called the company that makes the belts, mm-hmm. and we said, we want the belt that Brock Lesnar wears in UFC and WWE. Brock Lesnar, okay. Oh, yeah, this is a 15 pounds of eco-authority, baby. Okay. Because we're the Earth's champion. <laughs> and we had the belt, so we go around, and, and it's working really well. We connect with kids. We connect with adults, uh, liberals, Republicans. It doesn't matter. It's just it's a very non-threatening, non-polarizing way to begin a conversation. Right. Social media savvy behind it and everything like that. So that's kind of the Earth's Championship belt. He's Johnny Green's not here today, but he's let us use the belt. Frackleberry Hound, who's under your feet, is the, <laughs> is the uh, mascot. Again, and we're looking another, for recipes right now. For a, we're looking for recipes for a Frackleberry Hound cocktail. That's right. Mix. So if anybody wants to submit a cocktail mixture. Mixology. Mixology, you know, with various ingredients about what a Frackleberry Hound cocktail should look like. So one of our guests said, Frackleberry Hound, that sounds like a cocktail. Send your submission to. Studio at thecrudelife.com. It should be brown. (laughs) Brown, See, okay, brown. Frackleberry (laughs) Hound. So so two things to to go along with the Earth's title there. Um, I want to add on to this. out right out of high school well before even even before high school i was a boxer a uh, boxer yes okay um, i was a boxer amateur you know um I, not ufc boxing no no boxing like straight boxing. Up boxing yeah okay. i boxed for a small club out of odessa here in odessa called uh, twin city tigers um and then i i since i was from midland i i there was another club that opened up called the midtown soldiers check them out on facebook they're all over the place uh Frank, Frank is the coach. Lalo's the brother of, of the coach, and he's a, he's he helps him out quite a bit. Um, that's what I'm doing now on my pastime um, after hours. You know, I go out there and I help out with the with the kids. Um, I won a belt about that size. Probably wasn't as heavy. It was probably plastic. You know, <laughs> not gold or something like that. But anyway, uh, that was in Kansas City, Missouri, years ago. Um, so at the age of 24, I, I, I retired from boxing as an amateur, and, and I, I made a decision, hey, I want to teach kids my craft, you know, uh, away from welding, right? This is boxing, you know, so I, I, I brought up some kids, and they went all the way to the Nationals, and now I'm in there again. Uh, all this started because my daughter wanted a box. Well, I take that back. She didn't want to box. She had an attitude problem. And I said, hey, let's get this adjusted. Yeah. Uh, I some discipline. To, yeah, I took some, it to the boxing yeah. gym, and she started crying out of her. I mean, she just couldn't stop crying. Uh, uh, it went great. It went great. She <laughs> went in there, and, and uh, she hated it, but now she loves it. She she absolutely she loves it. She found a way to maybe take out her yeah, it was aggression all, it was so awesome. something. She, yeah. Uh, I remember a, a simple combination, one, two, three. She just couldn't pick it up. And I told her, "Why? How come you can you can do all this TikTok, but you can't do one, two, three? And I think that hit, that kind of hit her, you know, yeah. hit her around the noggin, and she picked it up pretty fast. How uh, old is she? She's ten years old, uh, okay. my little Julie, uh, but uh, <laughs> my huge Judy. She's 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 a big girl. She's uh, probably taller than me. I'm only tall. five foot. <laughs> yeah, she's taller than you. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but no, uh, just a big shout out. You know, uh, uh, again, you know, I brought up I brought up the the community you know community in oil field but you know also we got to reach outside of the community which is which is our children right and those coming up yeah Yeah. coming up you know uh we we have the boys and girls club right next door and across the street from them we have the the midtown soldiers which is the box club that i'm helping out at 
Frank Frank Lujan, man, look him up. He's, he's an awesome, awesome coach, you know. And uh, and I wasn't even gonna go that direction, but you brought up the title <laughs> belt, you know, and all that. And those are two things that it's match. incredible because it's yeah. not like you're just you know in the oil field working to collect paycheck. Right, you're giving right. back to the community as well, which is what we're all a part of. Right, and and right. like I said, you know, my whole family, we're all in this oil field craziness, but reaching outside of re- reaching outside of the, of the oil field you know we all have a separate life you know so let's let's all reach that away and and, and it's what you do when nobody's looking it, it's what we do when nobody's looking and my wife was so crazy the other day and we're talking about two weeks ago um i was working the midst with some kids you know and she said i didn't know this side of you and she started recording me um it's just there are little things that you don't know that makes an impact you know mm-hmm. i didn't know to me it's just working the midst no big deal it's something that i do every day uh, but to a lot of people, it's a it's a big deal. And I, when I finally understood what she was talking about, like, hey, maybe I should help out some more in the community, you know. So I, that's awesome. I just want to throw that out there. Um, um, and, and again, you know, we're out here having a good time and barbecuing and doing ribs and all that good stuff. But we all got a life outside of this, you know. Um, let's help out with the with the kids, you know, growing up because they're we're gonna count on them when we're all old and can't walk. <laughs> so <laughs> I just wanted to touch on that real quick, you know, since you brought up the title belt on Earth. TRC Construction once again. Uh, who's your customer? Israel how- Aguirre. How do we get a hold of you? You can give me a call at four three two two one zero seven seven nine three at any time. Uh, our customers right now would be uh, Kinder Morgan. Um, a longtime customer of mine, uh, when I worked for another outfit, would be DCP. Um, we've done a lot of work for Chevron. We've done a lot of work with Diamondback. Uh, done a lot midstream, of work. midstream companies. Yeah, a lot yeah. of midstream companies. You know, Wade Johnson, uh, he works for Diamondback. We did a lot of work for him, you know, and, and we have a relationship going way back. Mm-hmm. Way back when, you know, as a welder. Um, that guy hated welders. <laughs> no, just kidding. Uh, I know. Uh, energy transfer, you know, we had Rod Rod Bratcher. Was, he, he, was, he was a judge here today, so that was good to see him out here having Who a good won? time. Who won today, by the way? Um, do you know? I don't, I don't know. I, after we got second place, I didn't really care anymore. You got second place? <laughs> yeah, we got second oh, place on chicken. <laughs> Boy, I'm really oh, out to we're, yeah, we're late to the party. There's been a winners announced for the cook-off today, and we don't even know who that is. So yeah, we'll have to find I, I kind of feel like I, I cheated. Um, um we I brought on my, my buddy Gabriel Ornelas. He's uh he's with Frank's barbecue. And and I just wanted to You brought a ring? No, you wanted to bring yeah, good food. Hey, you man, wanted to bring good food? Out. Come help brought us out and, and and he did. It was awesome. You know, we had a good time. All of us did, you know, and so <laughs> it was good to see everybody out here. What's your email address? It's uh I A G U I R R E at T R C dash construction dot com. What is your company's website address? I don't know. <laughs> TRC. Well, just Google TRC construction, <laughs> and I'm sure you'll be able to find. I'm out them. of cars, so that's a good problem to have. But they're based in Farmington, happen. but they operate in several basins. So, <laughs> if you need civil, mechanical, utility construction, lines. utility lines, give right. them a shout. Yep, that's us. We'll be back in a vote. heard on the Crude Life Morning Show, Play Hard, Work Hard, is by the Moody River Bank.
Interested in becoming a sponsor? Email studio at thecrudelife.com. The Crude Life. Play hard, work hard. It's sponsored in part by Orange Property Management. The origins of Orange Property Management date back to the year 2000 when Fargo native Mike Marcel, an entrepreneur who was living in California, was starting to acquire residential properties in the Bay Area as a little side venture. Fast forward to today, Orange Property Management has grown to 36 full-time employees across 13 communities with a portfolio of over 1,300 residential and commercial units ranging from single-family homes to multi-family apartment developments. For more information, visit their website, orangeproperties.com. That's orangeproperties.com. The Crude Life. Play hard, work hard. Is sponsored in part by... For more than 100 years, First International Bank and Trust has been headquartered in western North Dakota, home of the Bakken. Our proven record of mineral management, appraisal, and brokerage services is now enhanced by the only Bakken-specific software, Mineral Tracker. Trust First International Mineral and Land Services and Mineral Tracker to protect your interests and help build and preserve a financial legacy for generations to come. It takes an industry to build a forest. Hey folks, Jason Spies with The Crude Life. Did you know about half the trees planted in the last 20 to 30 years have died within the first year? Lack of watering, transplant shock, special interest groups, poor growing conditions are just a few reasons it takes an industry to build a forest, and that is exactly what the industrial forest does. Sustainability sheds, critical pipeline systems are implemented to ensure the forest survives and absorbs carbon for decades to come. It takes an industry to build a forest. If you're interested in sustainable forests, growing industry jobs, check out theindustrialforest.com. That's theindustrialforest.com. Play hard, work hard. Now, let's play hard. Welcome back to the Crude Life Show. Uh, this is the Play Hard, Work Hard. I am Sean Forbes with TeamForbes.com and OGDirectory.com. Jason Spies is my co-host today. We are now talking to... Thank you to for having me today. You're welcome. Thank <laughs> you for being here. Appreciate your involvement in this uh, amazing uh, Permian Basin Association uh, Pipeliners annual cook-off. There's been amazing barbecue here today. It's been sunny. I've got a, a sunburn and like vitamin D, as we like to call it. And speaking <laughs> no of here. and speaking of D, we have D here yes, from no. Alpha Industrial. Shame on me for ruining that transition. <laughs> well, you had that Segue. one planned and everything. Segue. <laughs> How are you doing today? Pretty good. How about yourself? I'm good. I think I think you've been my favorite person here today. It's because you put a sticker on the back of my calf. Well, because you had you wore shorts today, and it's the beginning of March, um, and it's supposed to be spring. You know, well, like also maybe late winter. Five years in North Dakota, so this really doesn't oh, bother me. Oh, so you me. feel like this is this is summertime <laughs> yeah. weather to you? I did put a pretty shirt on though. I feel we should specify you the did. shorts because they're like 
basketball shorts. Well, no, they're Aeropostale. Aeropostale, so it's like a teenage, teenage brand shorts. And, and he's and pulling it off. shirt. Well, I look like I'm 12 anyway. With a hat so. on. Yeah. I mean, there's, yeah, you got all you kinds of You do enough of these events. On, I mean, a year with, I've been with the Pipeliners for three years, and uh, I just show up, and they're just like, oh, D, do this, D, do that, do this. So I, like, I quit dressing up. I gave up on that a long time ago. <laughs> D, what's the name of your company? I'm sorry, I missed that. Alpha Industrial. Alpha Industrial. Yes, sir. And what does that do? We uh, specialize in fabrication. Okay. Uh, so anywhere from welding stainless steel to cattle guards, and then you know we we have a uh, side hot shot, and then we've like been field field fabrication, like yes, mechanical ma'am. construction. Yes, ma'am. We'll send our do welders out. Do you do skids? Out. Do you guys yes, do skids? What kind of skids? Uh, just depending. Like we're doing compressors right now for Chevron. Okay. We just signed with them. Uh, put, Sorry. Oh, of course, the wind's got to blow. Awesome. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, no, we uh, we kind of just do a number of things, but my, my, like I said, mostly fabrication. On, you, you said know, saltwater disposal facilities. Yes, you ma'am. all do the mechanical construction, yes, welding ma'am. for that, those yes, types ma'am. of things. And what basin are you guys focused in? Uh, they're based out here in the Permian, uh, but like Eagle Fort a little bit, not so much. Uh, this this last year is really. Uh, Took a toll on everybody, I believe. I, did you catch one in the face? I think something just slapped me in my chest. Okay. Like the wind's blowing. Sorry, that was me. Oh. Oh, whoops. Might have been one of them stickers that you stuck on the back of my leg. It is one of my stickers. <laughs> Some other koozie that's not important it's right now. Karma. It's fine. Karma. <laughs> so, where are you from? I'm actually from Henrietta, Texas. Henrietta, Texas. Next what to brought which... you to North Dakota? When you were uh, up in North Dakota. I, well, I was actually, I got back from Nigeria, Africa. Okay, and, and let's, let's doing rewind what? here. What were you okay. doing there? I was testing Bonnie Lodge crude oil. So you, you graduated high school, then what? Let's start there. Yeah, I went to Tech. Okay, Texas Tech? There. Yes, sir. Red Raider? Oh, uh, Red oh, Raider, yes, good. sorry. I, apparently my mouth wasn't close enough to the mic. <laughs> but anyway, uh, yeah, I went to Tech and then uh, went to EMT firefighter school and decided that was not going to pay the bills. You know, can can I say something real quick? You know, you see this blanket I have here? Yes, sir. This was given to me by firefighters because we're big advocates for firefighters because... Absolutely. 85% are volunteer. Absolutely, yeah. Like, it might even be 90%. But I keep... I mean, not to get political, but I'm going to... I can't believe we send as much money as we do overseas oh, when we've yeah. got 85% of our firefighters on volunteer. And most of them are, are filing for grants to totally. try, just to get, get trucks. Just to and get. if you take away the oil and gas industry, there goes about 50% of your volunteer firefighters funds, if yes, not sir. 90%. Yes, sir. Are you kidding me? Yeah. It's, so, it's, sorry, I'm a big advocate for firefighters. Me too. I mean, me they're. I had my EMT license. I got my fire certification. EMT, same station. thing. Yep. Yeah. Emergency responders is what I'm getting at. Yeah. Yeah. No, I I, I appreciate. Uh, okay, so you found out there's no bills in emergency yeah, responders. Was, uh, okay. When I when I, uh, <laughs> when I got my EMT basic and was going for my intermediate and was looking at getting my paramedic, I was like, they make. Ten dollars an hour. All right, no money helping people. What do we got next? Uh, <laughs> what's next in the field? And I had a cousin who. Uh, Let's just say he wasn't the smartest. He uh, he went to work on a drilling rig and he was making eighty grand a year. Sounds like smart well, as a fox. Sounds to there's me. Something that, there's something to that. Someone right? started uh, working on a, a Kelly rig, a Swanson rig, 1974 Swanson uh, Kelly rig, throwing chain. Wow. Yeah, Slinging chains. For, yeah. Boy, you're old school. Oh so yeah. You're, so you're, field, you're a field guy. I was. 
Well, it's not no hey, more. I would so, s- I would claim that still. Like I'm a field guy. Oh, don't therefore, think I won't jump on I the rig in, in a heartbeat. I'll th- I'll throw slips. I'll throw tongues in a heartbeat. Yeah, but, but I I love I love people that <laughs> I love people that worked in the field and then transitioned to either a selling opportunity or a project management yes, position sir. where not only are they kind of managing the project, but they know how the project should be run. Yes, ma'am. And built. So yeah, I appreciate well, that. That's kind of yeah. one of my theories is, is uh, since I've kind of taken over as a uh, business development manager, uh, I won't ask one of my guys to do something that I ain't done 15 times plus. That's uh, it's just my rule of thumb. Um, mm-hmm. You know, from the loader, putting it on a trailer, hauling something. You know, I had a Class A CDL, hazmat, triples, doubles. I did all that. I skated on ice up in North Dakota forever with a winch truck. I've worked on drilling rigs every frack you can think of from here to Colorado to Texas. So it's, it's, I don't know. It's, it's a rough game and it's, it's a rough life. I wouldn't encourage it for most people, but you know, it's. Hey, it takes a certain person to do this job and not everyone can do an oil and gas job. You know, people think, Oh, big money, big oil and gas money, but there's a lot of, it's up and down. It's volatile. There's a lot of risk associated with the things that we do. It's very dangerous. It's high stake. And it it is. And I mean, I've, I've lost a lot, uh, you know, friends, uh, we got a divorce, uh, but I mean, me and my ex-wife are still best friends. Uh, but it just takes a, a toll on you personally, yeah, the job. You know, didn't like the fact that I was gone three, four months. You know, didn't know when I was coming back. Everybody was going to come back. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, and there's that old side. There's of sacrifice yeah, associated with every, this job, I mean, too. I mean, you never know. When you're on these roads, man, it's <laughs> from New Mexico to here to Williston, North Dakota to Denver, Colorado. You mentioned you lived in Watford City, and that was during the – That was b- Before the bypass years. Oh, before the yeah, you know the yeah, traffic, the bad yeah. traffic years is what I'm the getting at. The whole one lane all the way yeah. to Williston, North Dakota that took three hours to take a frack tank. White knuckle driving <laughs> yeah. the whole time. This is no, no shit. Okay, when I first went out to the Bakken – I went out with the owners of Max Hardware. Remember Max Hardware? Yes, sir. So it was the owners, and they wanted to get a, a bird's eye view, too, before they re- reinvested out there and everything. So we went out there, and on Highway 22, okay, okay right outside of Dickinson, North Dakota, yes, which sir. is right off. The, that's not even the busy part. Which, isn't it crazy how the hour changes when you hit Dickinson? Yeah, it's that, weird. in fact, so there, there's a gal who lost her election because she endorsed the time change and oh, really? it, it backfired on her it's like the most <laughs> ridiculous local election politics ever yeah so we got out there and this was you know back when you know 5,000 cars were driving by every 10 minutes type thing and was, that was a real number uh, yeah no no it really was and we made it seven miles we barely i don't even know if we got the dunn county line okay uh-huh. we made it seven miles from max hardware in dickinson north dakota on highway 22 and we looked at each other and we went Let's turn around. This is not safe. I mean, we're here like looking at animals at the zoo. We have no business being here, you know. And so for our safety, we actually turned back and drove back to Dickinson because we got the picture. There's way more than what, you know. And so down here, there's a lot of that still down here. There's a lot of still because the activity is so high and things. And you go to, you know, Highway 75 from Kansas. Holy crap, man. A lot of semis, which is a good sign. But at the same time, it's sketchy. You got to know how to drive. I've, I've driven them all. So I, I do want to ask you though. You mentioned slinging chains, and one of the 
articles that we did probably year two or three was the transition away from the guys slinging chains into more of the modern, you know, uh, technology. When you're making a connection, uh, you know, you you would slap a chain, sling a chain. um, Talking about drill pipe. Yes. Okay, (laughs) sorry. (laughs) No, okay, yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, your older rigs, that's that's how you'd make your connection. Yep. You know, uh, when you'd Kelly up, come in, slap your chain. Pull, tongs hit. Right. Uh, but now all your top drives of uh, hell, everything's about hydraulic now. So most, most of the guys, okay, so I, <laughs> I'm afraid of heights. And so I, I made Motorman and I went to go make Derek's. And that's, you know, the dude that's up there. That's 150 from, feet up, changing the. Yeah, well. The, uh, 50 feet up or it's whatever. It's a very small platform. Let's yeah, just and say. You're, and you're taking that pipe and you're throwing them in the fingers. Right. I made it all in, of in seven mile an hour wind in North it, Dakota, and it's cold yeah. and dangerous. So right? I come back down on the you got a little guided wire behind you. I made it back down, and the driller goes, "D, what are you doing?" I, 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 my knees are knocking. I, I, I can't, I can't, I can't do that. And he goes, "Well, you have to work Derek's before you can become a driller." I said, well, "It looks like I need to find a new job." <laughs> <laughs> so I went into fracking. <laughs> well, what I found was that when I got into publishing, for example, that's what I came from. Yes, sir. We first I learned on light tables. Okay, like I, the very last year and a half to two years. They were just getting out of like laying out magazines on light tables. Okay. Mm-hmm to go to actual computer software because still some of the printing presses were a little bit old school and th- yeah go ahead yeah no i mean i know the print process so you, you know do what I'm the talking light about. tables the layout the setup so, then you do the plates right you do right? plates and things and like the plate that goes it, on the print press dude, this was a process yeah and what happened is is when you ushered in the technology it streamlined it opened up all this time but i was so appreciative that i understood the basics it helped me understand the new technology better than anybody that came in without having that couple years of the old school mentality. Did that happen with you at all with the slinging chains or uh, is the technology so different that... No, because you knew the manual process. So when it became automated, are you, are you like, hey, like when guys you, that are doing the, like the automation process, like this is how we did it back in the day. When, when you we did talk it. to the older generation, like some of your older company men... I, you won't hear me talk, and I'm a chatty Kathy. I'll just sit and listen to their stories. But everything, these H&P walking rigs, uh, I mean, it's it's changed so much that nobody really knows. I mean, I've got a flowback company to, like, to even to plumb bob a tank. Uh, he has no idea to do how to actually take a physical plumb bob and check the oil and water out of a tank battery. Because it's all done digitally on a computer screen for him. He just knows how to check the monitor. All he knows but if how the do system, the but if the system shut down and you had to do it manually, then he calls my fat butt to come out there and help him out. <laughs> right. I've, I've actually wondered <laughs> so that about like doctors. Yeah. <laughs> they do so much robotic surgery. Can they even do a surgery now? Right. <laughs> no offense, to the doctors. It's just the way the bottom well, day I is. I mean, it's. I mean, you know, it's it's like anything. Like Tristy Water, it's going to take the least of. Uh, Resistance, you know, like that's where everybody goes. You know, like it's easier to do it this way than that mm-hmm. way. But I mean, that's that's how I started out. Um, I found it gave me a leg up because the the newer generation had no idea how the basic core or the basic building blocks worked. Whereas for me, that's what I learned. So right. it was just so natural. Well, they're still figuring it out. I'm already there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I get that. And then the thing is too, it's like. 
you know, I was born in 84. I, I learned all this back in 06, 07. I don't know what they did before then. I just know what I was taught. Yeah. You know, so that there might be some other new or not old age that's, you know, different than I know. No, it's all valuable knowledge, though. I mean, we can't lose sight of what people have learned over the years, even though, you know, technology has evolved and we have new ways to do things like that old school mentality. I feel like somehow they need to bottle that and put that into a, a technology and software, but you just can't. Yeah. It's just knowledge and know-how. I have this weird personality where when I go eat at a restaurant, I just try to figure out how to make the meal as I'm eating it. And I just wonder how much of that is just if there's anybody like that anymore. You know what I mean? Because there's another there's another well, dog out here and oh Frockleberry no, Hound is getting all excited. I, oh, <laughs> I will tell you this, though. It's we're, we're getting into uh, we're getting close to the factor where the old generation is about to wash out. <laughs> Uh, not wash out, but it's John, just... John, take over. <laughs> they, uh, a lot of the elder generation that I've worked with for the past decade, they're they're about to cash out. Like, they're... And, and I hate it. No, they... Because you've got these... Yeah, because they're going to... They're, no, they're going to bring in some 20-something-year-olds and pay them, you know, a fraction of the cost of these old-timers, but... You're losing the value yeah. of these old timers and their knowledge, and it's it's a sad thing, especially in the pandemic, where you know a lot of companies unfortunately have had to lay a lot of people off. Yeah, and now you know there's a huge um, amount of people that are looking for jobs, and so companies are taking advantage of that, and now they're want to lowball people and bring them in at a lower rate, but they're not going to be satisfied with their job and they're just losing out on the only thing that scares me is so i've i've taken guys out in the field i've trained i've helped out i have every certification you can think of as safety wise with ocean so there's things that like i pick up on that i see and they're just bliss too like if that monitor doesn't tell them you're talking about younger folks yeah, yeah, coming younger in people that come into the yeah. field that are like well it didn't say not, there that, was not a that there's not a market like, for younger you people hear it yeah you didn't hear that gas leak well my monitor didn't go off screw your monitor dude like you did not hear that and you're over there playing on your cell phone there's an aware awareness away. awareness can i yeah. can, can i interrupt because i'm not sure how we got into this conversation yeah. because <laughs> frackleberry hound's busy with a climate activist but i <laughs> I, I really enjoy this conversation because there's a real lack of accountability coming in where people are expecting the computer or the government or some just omnipotent form of authority to tell them what to do. Mm -hmm. And this whole just common sense, let's just call it that. I was going to say lack of common sense. It's just gone. Because your example is right. Like, well, if this thing tells me if the computer says it's not a leak well then it's not a leak well, if I well can you see message. it coming out in front of you yeah did you not hear it because i right. saw it in your snapchat buddy right yeah you know it's a, <laughs> your I snapchat said look at this stupid pipe leaking get away <laughs> well earlier we were talking to someone and they were talking about you know hey we brought on this guy who had this certification and it was all like book smarts, but he didn't know how to actually do the act of like welding in the field. You I, know, I, I learned it's this like, a long time ago from a paramedic. He said, "You can sit in the, the the schoolhouse all day until you're in the field, till you've been beat, right. till you've been cut, till you've been bruised. 
you've you've you know been slapped. You in have the zero face. experience you until have you've experienced that book it. Doesn't do anything but give you just a little bit of education. Yeah. I, I mean, I've I've been through up. I've been through down. I've been through just about everything you think of. Until you've actually been in that negative 50 weather, until you've been in that 120 degree weather, I mean, everything that you can think of, unless you've been there and done it, you don't know. Mm -hmm. And and it's the thing that that you send these guys to these schools, and and I'm not trying to bring any engineer down or whatever, you know, they're smarter than I am, but I promise you in that field, when when shit goes away, I'll be the guy that'll be the one that saves the day on the, you know, when I'm like, hey, that's a leak in the pot, you know, you're not checking your PSI, like, what, what the hell are you doing? And all these youngsters are just like, well, my my phone didn't say nothing. I downloaded the app, and I'm like, screw that app, dude. Oh, you're you're scaring me right now, man. <laughs> no, so there's something to me. say for technology, but actual field experience is priceless. It is. Right? It is. It is. It's. Uh, and I tell every one of the young guys, and we call them green hats. Uh, green know, hats? Green hats. Green hats. So green they were, hats, a, okay. you know, okay. a, a hard hat that's green. Hats. Green hats, yeah. Anytime that you get the opportunity to get around an old man that's, you know, got 10 plus years in the field, listen. Listen to what he's been through. Is that all it takes to be an old man is 10 plus years? Well, I'm just saying in the old field, you know. No, that's no, that's okay. You maybe can more than maybe, 10 maybe years. Maybe, maybe 10. I don't know. <laughs> maybe more than more 10 than years. More than six months and most of these guys that come up but, here. Because like comes but, up here thinking they're going to make a million dollars. And then they end up losing a hand. And then, you know, then they're on unemployment. Yeah. Right. No, because they didn't listen. Yeah. I no, have but, all my fingers and I've been throwing chains and slips for 18 years. I would say anyone who's worked in the field for any number of years doing anything, anyone coming on, it's like, don't put your pride in the way of your education to learn from people who have actual experience because there's people that come on with bachelor's degrees and master's degrees and there's guys who work in the oil field who have no college education and they are the most technically experienced people you will ever meet. And so it's like there's some definitely something to say for Absolutely. these guys, you Absolutely. know. Like you I can learn a, a lot from them. So a, a funny thing talking about old men. I had a dude in Denver, Colorado. He owns Gila Pile. Doesn't have a, a high school diploma. He's a millionaire, owns his own jet. And I, I've just started getting into the business development role, uh, learning that side, you know, getting a little old, uh, me jumping on rigs and throwing hoses and, you know, chains mm-hmm. and stuff. And he told me, he said, son, I like your attitude. You're a good guy. He said, but if you can't bedazzle with brilliance, baffle with bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> And that's that's another old man trick that uh, just another it's an old man trick and a sales trick. But you also have to know what you're talking about. Exactly. Because yeah. <laughs> I'm like, as a procurement person, if I know what I'm talking about and you don't know what you're talking about. Well, I mean, that's yeah. Come on. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> you know what I tell people? All it takes to be is a all it uh, blah, blah, blah. All it takes to Did be a genius <laughs> is blah, blah, blah. Right. That's, we, need, we need a sounder drop. All it takes to be a genius is no 1% more than the person sitting next to you. See, That's right. Yep. That's right. <laughs> or, you know, it's it's always okay to admit that you don't know, and you will find out and report back immediately with an answer, right? Oh, like, absolutely. immediately. Yeah. Like, don't bullshit a bullshitter. <laughs> well, you just got to But you find out, ears. you just say, hey, I'm not sure what the answer is to that, but I'm going to go find out, and I will let you know. Immediately. 
Can I peel your sticker off my calf now? No. So D over here has been a walking billboard for me. His his oh, his white joke. His legs are uh, have lacked a little bit of sun for a little while, so they're very brilliant in their um, color. And then like his calves are uh, stupendous. So he's been a walking billboard for a sticker, a TeamForbes.com sticker. I noticed you're trying to become the new gnome in the oil patch, getting people taking pictures of your face all over the place. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I, I got a picture texting me earlier, some girl that went into Starbucks and put her Starbucks around the can koozie. So <laughs> apparently it works outside of beer. and get a beer. And, and yeah, a, I mean, it's mm. just, you know, an iconic you're thing. You're killing it. <laughs> it's and it's a, on it's, my calf. It's ridiculous. And, it's fun. And, incredi- it's and incredible all it's at the same time. It's and fun, and it's, it's, yeah, it is ridiculous. It's redunculous. It it's is. Ridiculous. And it, Which it, makes me think of a ridiculous donkey. And I haven't even donkey. told the story. I haven't even told the story about how the whole, like, Team Forbes sticker of my face came about, but we'll talk about that on, at another time. Okay. We, well, whatever we got. We got plenty of time. <laughs> well, hey, guys, I, I do want to thank you all so much for coming out here to the Pipeliners. Hey, uh, by the way, where where are you at? Where were you at, North Dakota? We never talked about that. Just real quick. Oh, uh, I started in Watford, and uh, then I moved to Williston, and then like our continental fracks were anywhere from Newtown, okay. Dickinson, Kildeer, uh, around that area. Uh, I think we did a little in South Dakota, not much. I think we did one Poseidon there. A little bit in the Tyler, I suppose, yeah, in that. Yeah, just to cap it. much. Yeah. Uh, we were doing some containments down there. So did how long were you in North Dakota then? Almost five and a half years. Okay. All right. I just wanted to check out. We got. It was know, almost like a prison sentence. Oh, no. North Dakota is a tough. I just said it. I just said it with an accent. You did. You said North Dakota. North Dakota. You've been hanging out with me too long, girl. North Dakota. Okay, I need to hang on. Out in Colorado. North oh, don't you know? Hold on. North <laughs> Dakota About? is a treacherous environment in the wintertime to work. I mean, I remember one time I was there and I was looking for a bunch of stainless fittings that a vendor sent, and I told them, send it here to this one location, and, and it ended up in five different locations. It went to my fab shop, it went to a drilling rig, it went to a saltwater disposal facility, and so I was out there and it was negative 15 and blowing snow, and I was so angry because... It, it makes it, you angry. No, it makes me angry because... Yes. And then, you know, so I'm just like, I'll be in the truck like <laughs> where it's warm. No, but then I went to the vendor I'm and I here. said... You, you come out here and you find this That's stuff exactly because this right. is inappropriate <laughs> for me to have to go look for this stuff when I told you exactly where you needed to deliver it. But it also gave me a huge appreciation for the men and women in our industry who work out in that basin because it is treacherous. Oh, yeah. It is treacherous. I mean, and it, I was only out there for maybe 30 minutes, but I can't imagine... Day after day after day after day, just being out there. And then there's just like little trash cans with fires. And that's the only warmth that they have to just warm up for 10 oh, minutes. And then it's like, go could back you, to work. Just, could you imagine no, that? No, I can't. If in a school, in all seriousness. So when I when I went and toured my first rig ever, mm-hmm. you know, the what it, the frack pipe, what do they call that? What's the actual term, the frack pipe? Are you, are you talking about the water line? The, the frack pipe, you know, it goes down and the, the pipe. Oh, the, the stem line? The yeah, stem line, thank okay. you. And what, you're 50 feet up in the air and you got to put it on there? there no, that's Roughly. not fracking. That's your drilling. Horizontal drilling. That's what I'm talking yeah. about. Okay. okay. 
Oh, so, you're talking about your casing coming down in for Casey, the thank you. Okay, okay. All right. I, I was on a yeah, different I've page. had a little bit too much myself. <laughs> oh, Chardonnay, huh? So, well, Maybe so, had a few what of it, huh? I mean, it's very <laughs> refreshing. Don't, when, like, hate on the Chardonnay. When I first went there and I saw them putting those... I call them frack pipes is what I call them. No, that's no, the, I know that's different that's ballgame. That's what I call them. This is, this is the problem here. Oh, I know. <laughs> so when I saw them 50 feet up in the air, mm-hmm. and all I could think of was the blowing wind and the cold and everything else like that. Going, that's what they should be showing kids on how their light switches turn on. Yeah. To be like, could you imagine if schools actually said, well, this is going to be interesting, if schools actually showed that, Instead of all the other stuff, to just to just to no, they talk about big oil, big That's oil. What I mean. Instead of yeah, showing the smokestacks yeah. all the time, but it's like look at the the people Show who the actually place. work outside to bring energy to our homes. What they have to go through to to get that energy. Tell you how many swampers that that's worked with me that I've literally said get in the truck because their eyelids were frozen. Like you could just see the yeah. crystals, the frost uh, yeah, on their and face. I'm like, Dude, get in the truck. Like stop! Like no, no, I'm good, D. I'm good, D. I'm like no, you're not. Get in the truck and thaw out. You don't know what frostbite means, but your finger will pop off in a second. A single, yeah. At a point, you don't feel nothing. No, that's what I mean. I've I've been there. I've been there. You know, helping out building dikes and stuff. That of like, like man, I'm good. I'm good. And you know, I've had a supervisor come to me and be like, D, get in the truck. Like you're purple. Yeah, it's it's. And then another, we did a story about how um, when North Dakota it was the sixth coldest winter. I think it was 2016. I was there on record. And <laughs> I was there. I was there. Would, I was there too. Would put it I'm in perspective about. for me was that I interviewed truckers that trucks, their diesel trucks were gelling up and stalling oh, yeah. on the interstate. Yeah, that's how cold it was. No, we would have to sit there and region. On a high rate, so our RPMs would kick up on our trucks, so we could just keep it hot enough to go because we didn't have a uh, uh, one of those hot uh, plug-in things, you yeah, know, under the, it. the plugs. So we would just keep it on the highest region level we could, so it just hopefully not. That would marvel me though. Like, okay, an engine is pretty hot. Like, you can cook eggs on an engine normally. Okay, it's yeah. pretty hot, and the engine's next to all the stuff in your car, and that didn't even keep it warm enough. I seen in North Dakota a couple Kenworths and Peterbilts that ran for about three and a half months and never turned off. Even when the mechanics worked on them, they did not turn them off. I have friends that when the winter starts, their diesel's on, and then at the end of the winter, their diesel turns off. But if it's in their driveway, out in the parking lot, at Walmart, wherever it is, they just keep it running all winter long because... (laughs) Play the numbers. It's much easier that way. Yeah, absolutely. I had a uh, boss one time uh, when I first went to North Dakota. He said uh, work had gotten slow for a little bit, and we were water hauling. And he said, hey, uh, D, you want to get a few extra hours? I said, yeah, sure. What what do you need, boss? He said, we need to start filling the trucks up, get them full of diesel. Because, I mean, they same thing, just running all night, all day long until we caught, caught another job. That's all right, boss. So, I mean, I just got a pair of britches, boots, threw a jacket on because the truck's been running. So, I'm literally walking out of the man camp to the truck. Excuse me, sorry. Uh, I get to the gas station at Watford, and he calls me and says, hey, we got a job. Dude, I don't have any FR clothing. I don't have none of my winter gear on, but I can't be a sissy. (laughs) 
So I'm like, all right, all right, all right, man. Yeah, I'll, I'll go do it. So I'm going to this drilling rig, and I'm sucking all this water off of. And boss shows up, and he's like, Jesus, D, what are you wearing? I said, man, this is all I had, dude. And I was freezing, freezing, freezing. He goes, D, if that truck went down, you could die. I go, what do you mean I could die? He goes, it takes 30 minutes in this cold weather for your body to shut down. I said, there's 200 gallons of diesel in that truck that I can set on fire. So <laughs> you can pick me up or the fire department can pick me up. Which one you want, cowboy? <laughs> it's got to get done. It's got to get done. It's all about choices. I ain't, lo- I ain't losing this fat kid. Not today, sir. Not today. <laughs> you had a little little insulation. Yeah. Well, for 30 minutes, supposedly. <laughs> right. All right. What's the website again? Uh, Alpha, shoot, hold on, let me, yeah, alphaindustrial.com. All right, see, pop quizzes here at the Crude Life. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> D, what's your real name? Dylan. Dylan? Yes, ma'am. Nobody can pronounce Mihar. that. Dylan. Nobody can pronounce Dylan. They, they call me Dylan. Dylan. But oh. I've been D since, like, second grade. What's your email address? D at alphaindustrial.com. And your phone number? 940-867-2655. All right, we'll be back, folks. Later. Well, she's domesticated, knows how to use a map and room. Music heard on the Crude Life Morning Show, Play Hard, Work Hard, is by the Moody River Band. Crude Life, the most trusted voice in energy. On the phone, talking with us today, Chairman Christy Craddock of the Texas Railroad Commission. We are the oil and gas regulator, but we do pipelines and pipeline safety inspections for the state of Texas. We have roughly 470,000 miles of interstate and intrastate pipelines in Texas and roughly another 500,000 miles of gas utilities. We have a lot of pipe in Texas. We're the largest pipe state by a six. It's an important part of what goes on in the state and safety is, is really important, obviously, to all of us. Absolutely. You know, the, the oil and gas industry has always been environmentally focused. I mean, uh, the President Biden's administration that this is Obama Biden 2.0 plus and the rate at which we've seen the executive orders flying off the president's desk is taking America back, taking jobs back, and putting us in a detrimental position. 
But as the attorneys general for a number of states, we are pushing back. Um, from the Department of Transportation, that Permian, the Permian Basin has some of the um, most deadly roads of anywhere in the country. We average a fatality per day. That is absolutely unacceptable, and we need to do better. Uh, we just want to thank everybody that has been so supportive of us, and especially you, Jason. Without without your help, I don't think our event would be as successful as it is. Welcome back to The Crude Life. Play hard, work hard. I am Sean Forbes with TeamForbes.com and OGDirectory.com. Jason Spies is my co-host today. I went out there on my first rig move. And I was like, wow, I'm permitting all these loads, getting trucks going, load go, and I don't even know what half the stuff was. So when I finally got to go on the rig, I was like, wow, I was amazed. I was truly amazed of how this process is. No, I wasn't expecting any olive branch at all. Uh, the Democrat Party has decided that they don't like oil and natural gas, and uh, they were clear that they're going to go after us. I, I don't think that's any surprise. My name is Jenica, and today we get to talk with Amy Andrzak of the Interstate Natural Gas Association of America. Amy is the president and CEO. How are you doing today? I would say my my interest in this arena started more from an interest in politics and advocacy, more so than an interest specifically in the energy industry. Well, the first the, the first advice that I that I want to give is, ladies, put your clothes on, okay? If you want to be taken seriously, put your clothes on, which that's a whole other podcast topic. It's a funny thing, what I think sometimes is just really ironic. I'll, I used to pull into the office and I would see some of my colleagues driving electric cars and things like that. And I'm like, how do you work for a large oil and gas company and <laughs> pull in an electric car? So, I mean, even us, I mean, even in our, in our circles, we can see that things are changing. Actually, you are on the money. Back in 2014 and 15, when we first started approaching our management team at Whiting, our reasoning for wanting to engage in ESG is that we had great stories to tell. We all like living the crude life, so. <laughs> Play hard, work hard. Now let's work hard. Sure. My name is Mike Rantro. I'm with a company called Blue Boat Subsea. And uh, Blue Boat Subsea is a renewables service provider. I also own three other companies that are primarily traditional energy companies, Deep Blue Subsea, Deep Blue Marine, and Deep Blue Offshore International. Now, you reached out to me on social media about your company, and if my memory serves me correctly, you mentioned you had uh, 29 years of oil and gas experience. Is that right? Yeah, I moved to Houston from Roseville, Minnesota in 93. Okay, and where'd you move to in Texas? I've lived predominantly in the Houston area. Um, I lived in Houston for five years. And when my wife and I got married in 99, we moved out to Spring, which is on the north side of Harris County, which encompasses Houston. When kids came along post-Katrina, we... uh, decided we wanted to be a little further away from uh, all of the modern uh, childhood temptations, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. My uh, morning show partner, he grew up in Saudi Arabia uh, on an oil 
base. It's called Dahran, which is actually like a city, but it's a it's, it's really an oil base because all the employees there, from the teachers to the grocery store workers, they're actually employees of Saudi yeah. Ramco. And back, right. I've, I've actually I've actually done work. Uh, with Saudi Aramco, I spent a year during Desert Storm in Saudi Arabia. Okay. So you're f- you're familiar with that then? Yes, sir. Um. So anyway, he uh, he jokes that you know when he was six, I think it was sixteen, they send you away to boarding school because of the temptations <laughs> that that come with a foreign market and. Uh, being in Saudi Arabia, it was in the best interest to send the boys away to Saudi to boarding boarding school. So I anyway, that, that's what made me think of it when you said the temptations of that. But I was actually thinking you might want to move away from the coast just because of hurricanes, uh, just by sheer just safety and just you know different lifestyle. And up here in the Midwest, we've got flooding issues and people get tired of the cold and you know what I mean by that. You know, I spent 25 years in Minnesota, northern Minnesota, on the Canadian border, and I would much rather deal with hurricanes, to be honest. They're really not that bad. I mean, depending on where you're at. Um, and where you, yeah, what your uh, structure's like, too. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, we had, during Hurricane Ike in 09, we had 117-mile-an-hour winds over the top of my house. We lost power. We were without power for 13 days, but we have generators and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like snow plows up north, right? And um, we never had, I mean, we, we had power. It was just generator power. The only inconvenience was having to go get, you know, so many gallons of gas a day to keep the generator going. Find and it interesting. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. We, you know, I mean, I've, I don't even know how many hurricanes I've been through. Eight or ten, probably. And, I mean, we've never suffered any substantial damage. We've had inconveniences. Um, Hurricane Harvey, we were surrounded by water, but we were above it. Um, of course, we just had the winter storm down here, which I'm, I'm sure everyone up north jokes about. Because I'd have never missed a day of work had I still lived in Minnesota. But we just don't have the infrastructure to remove ice and snow. We don't have plows. Uh, most of us lost power. Um, it, it's just a slight, it, it's a trade-off, right? Hurricanes that replace blizzards, in my, in my mind, haven't been here as long as I have. One of the things that the Texas freeze or the power outage and you know that that just happened last month the uh, thing that reminded me of up here in minnesota and north dakota we get people that go without power for weeks all the time but they're they're rural people they're used to it and they're self-sufficient because when when the rain comes in and then it freezes it coats those power lines and out, out in the rural part, man, those power lines, if they snap, sometimes it takes two weeks before the power company can get out there and repair them. And, you know, those people living out there, there's like four of them, four homes out there. And it's, it's funny because when I was at the radio station, we used to check in with them for daily updates. And they were doing better than a lot of people around town. <laughs> so, my, my mother grew up in Lakota, just west of, northwest of you. Um, just eat between Grand Forks and, and uh, Devil's Lake. Sure. 
and uh, we still have the family farm there. And you're, you're right, they're very self-sufficient. I mean, it would take a, a, a pretty catastrophic, probably an apocalyptic type of a event for them to uh, have too many concerns. So let's uh, transition a little bit to what you're doing now. Now, you spent, tw- you know, you, you grew up in Minnesota, War Road, actually, Canadian border. And, yeah, yeah. And then you, you moved down to Texas, where you spent 29 years in the oil and gas industry. My guess is you didn't spend any time in the oil and gas industry up in War Road. I did not. No, I, there, uh, there's none up there. There's nothing up there, is there? No, no. I mean, I, I worked in a typical rural farming community. I worked at yeah. the elevator, the lumber yard. Uh, there used to be a chain of lumber stores, you know, Roberts and Lumber out of Grand Forks. I worked for them for several years. I did construction. Maybe a hockey stick company in there. I don't know. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, Christian Brothers, yeah. maybe, yeah. Yeah, I worked at Marvin Windows for a little while. Okay. About a year, I, just did, I don't like working in factories. I mean, I'm an outdoors kind of a person. And when during Desert Storm, I was actually introduced to scuba diving and on an MWR tour at Bahrain. And I got my first initial certification in uh, Saudi Arabia, actually at uh, one of the Aramco complexes. And I just decided that I I wanted to do something different with my life. And so uh, I spent, I I got back in December of 91 and I spent most of 92 getting my affairs in order. In March of 93, I moved to Houston. I went to commercial diving school and I went to work in the oil field. I didn't really plan on going to work in the oil field, but I wanted to be a commercial diver. And the oil field is where all the work was at. And um, I've spent most of my career, I I spent probably... Can I I pause for a second? Let's pause for a second here. Sure. I'm not familiar with the commercial diving aspect of oil and gas outside of like some some deep sea welding or something like that is there you know is there exploratory diving jobs i guess talk to me a little bit about how that that diving job became a gateway into oil and gas and i i apologize for my naivete on that no not at all you know and 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 it's real easy And, and you touched on part of it diving and welding is part of it Although welding underwater has become almost a bygone thing because... No kidding. Those welding, the, the welds that you perform underwater quench very quickly yeah. compared to welding a pipeline on the surface across, you know, western North Dakota. So they're very brittle. So the majority of the work I did, I actually laid pipe. Um we installed platforms, we removed platforms. I worked on big derrick barges, pipe plate barges, as well as dedicated dive support vessels. And then in uh, 99, when, when uh, I convinced my, my girlfriend of five years, it wasn't really five years if you ask her, because I was home about 20 or 30 days out of every year, and two or three at a time usually. Um, she thought she wanted me home every night. She didn't realize what she was asking for, but I, I, I took a job in operations and then ultimately sales working for a company called Superior Diving, who I had been diving for previously. Uh, I was there for in the working in the office about four years, and I started getting some other job offers that were a whole lot better than the 
the place I was working, it opened doors with companies like Shell, Exxon, Chevron, VP. And uh, I continued working for that company, Epic Divers, for about two years. Then I went back offshore for about a year working as a oil company representative. So I was the guy in charge of the boat offshore. And then I got pulled back into sales in 2005 working for a company. It was actually one of Forbes's top, top 10 fastest growing companies in America for two years post Katrina. That, the name of that company was Deep Marine Technology. I stayed there until they started failing in 2009 is when I started my own company. And I've been with, I've been self-employed ever since. So how did you transition then? I don't know. Are you completely out of oil and gas and into wind energy a hundred percent or talk to me a little bit about that whole deal? I'd say about, about 80% wind and about 20% energy, uh, oil and gas. Most of what we're doing with oil and gas, is decommissioning. I believe there's 27 structures off the California coast right now that are slated for removal. And one of our boats is, um, we have tendered several of those projects, both for the state of California, as well as the individual operators that originally installed them. I'm under non-disclosure on that. I can't say who owns them, but it, not rocket science. There's only three companies that own, all, own structures off the California coast. Yeah. You so, know, the, the trend has been, especially since the downturn in 2012, is that the large oil companies are removing these, these minimal producing structures and reinvesting that money in other areas like Exxon is in Guyana. But the the majority of the work that we're seeing in oil and gas, which is about probably 20% of our business, is almost all removal. Interesting. It's, it's taking those structures out. We do have one bid in in um, Saudi Arabia for a very large international, um, uh, I guess you'd call them a, a multinational uh, contractor. They're installing uh, the Marjan project for Aramco. We've got live bids out for that, that we may or may not end up securing that work. So the wind energy part, what's, um, how, how'd you get into that from oil and gas then? I mean, was it, was it you know, bid you work? Know, uh, obviously bid work, but how, how did that initially happen? In early 2020, when the COVID crisis was beginning, um, I had several meetings with a gentleman named Gary Wilmore. Gary and I have done a lot of joint work together over the last 10, 15, 20 years. Gary was actually the state inspector for the state of Rhode Island and installed the Block Island structure. The, the five structures at Block Island in 2015 and 16. And we just sat down talking one day and we said, you know, oil and gas is, is really kind of a, a fading trend, if you will. And Gary says, you know what we ought to do is we ought to start a company between, I, I'm, I'm a bit younger than he is, Gary's 68, I'm 54. 
he says, you got a lot of, a lot of spunk left in you. You know, what would you think if we started a company that did primarily wind? And I, I was familiar with his, his previous offshore wind um, installation experience. I said, let's do it, Gary. I didn't even have to think about it. I looked at my wife. It was actually Memorial Weekend. Gary had a barbecue at his house. I looked at my wife. She winked, and I said, Gary, let's do it. And it really, it just didn't take any thought process because it is the future. There are somewhere between six and 15,000 structures that will be installed off the Atlantic seaboard in the next 10 years. And when I started in the Gulf of Mexico, there were approximately 7,000 structures. So in 50 years, we put in 7,000 structures. When you say structures, you're talking about the wind turbines? That's correct. That's correct. There are, I want to say, 11 to 14 various fields under consideration. And the 2018 Department of Energy report, which is the newest one I've been able to find for business development purposes, states that there are 6,000 sanctioned structures that will go in. You know, there's 80 in this field, there's 140 in this field, 150 in that field. You know, you've got your various operators, your Orsteads, your Vineyards, Avangrids. Each one of them has contracts with each state to produce X number of megawatts or gigawatts of electrical power. So off of each coastline, there are, you know, corresponding numbers of, you know, 800 megawatts, I think it is, off New York although I may have my numbers crossed. But, uh, you know, they range anywhere from a couple hundred megawatt off of uh, Rhode Island to, I want to say, 1,300 off of Massachusetts. Each one of those, each one of those individual facilities um, produces about 10.5 megawatts of power with what's currently available. GE did just come out with a larger one that produces 13 and a half, but there, um, there's some time prior to delivery. So most of the ones that are planned now are about 10 and a half megawatt generators for the individual structures. And then the fields, you know, there's 80 to 100, 150 of them, depending on which field it is. Who's the, um, who's the customer when it comes to wind? Or I guess who who's the operator when it, you know the wind you know who's who's in charge there you know when it comes to the oil and gas you know you mentioned the you know the Exxon's and the BPs and up in Alaska what is there Shell and BP up there or no Exxon and BP Exxon yeah Exxon BP Shell on the on the North Slope yeah you know what I mean but in wind energy are is it these global oil and gas companies or is it you know Wind companies. To some extent, yes. Shell and BP are very active in the renewables. Now, when you say renewable, are you talking wind? Primarily wind, yes. Okay, yeah. Although there's other stuff, you know, there's solar, there's wave power, there's there's all this stuff under consideration. Oh, nuclear. Nuclear. Mm -hmm. um, Shell and BP are very active in the U.S. East Coast wind market. But... What's interesting is there's only one U.S. company involved in the Atlantic offshore wind industry, that being Dominion Energy. They're based out of New Orleans. Sure. And, and um, that, that's really the only one that you've seen, huh? 
Now, there are a lot of operators out of Norway, Holland, the UK. You've got Orsted, which is a Dutch company. You have uh, Equinor, which is a Norwegian company, formerly Statoil. Boy, this is interesting. You have, um, gosh, there's EDF out of Spain. Of course, of course Shell is Royal Dutch Shell. I mean, they're, they're out of Holland. And then you've got, um, gosh, there's a bunch more. You've got Avangrid, which is a partnership, and I can never keep these straight, the partnership ones. I, you know, um, these companies you mentioned, you know, Statoil is the one that jumped out to me. And, you know, they, they do a lot in drilling, you know, in, in oil. I think they do. Um, Absolutely. So Absolutely. Uh, these, the, the, huge, huge, huge global players. Right, right. So those other companies you named, um, are they also in the oil and gas markets, these European companies you named? Um, the only one that I know for certain is is BP Shell and uh, Statoil slash Equinor. Yeah. Which I I don't know why they changed their name. I think it had to do with their play in in renewables. Well, I, it, it flat out had to do with the word oil in there. Absolutely, it did. Totally. That's right. the same reason why BP, BP went to went from British Petroleum to BP, so that people can think beyond petroleum is you know, the new acronym and whatever the heck is. But, no, I just wanted to make sure because I Statoil was the only one that jumped out as kind of a hybrid oil and gas slash wind energy. So the rest are basically wind energy companies that are coming in and building uh, offshore. Are these, off, these are offshore you're talking about, right? That's correct. And, I mean, right now there are five producing windmills off of the U.S. coast. And those are on Rhode Island, Rhode Island, off of Block Island. Now there are some exploratory ones. I think there's some off of Virginia. There's some floaters off of the California coast, but those are used primarily for research and development for what the what the true wind potential is. We don't. The very first utility grade installation will be Vineyard, which is off of Martha's Vineyard. They have five blocks. Each one of those is going to have, you know, 80 to 150 individual windmills. All right, you're going to you're going to probably get upset, but what what's vineyard? Is that is that a geographical colloquial term? Is that a name of a project? Is that a name of an energy company? What's vineyard? No, so vineyard is another operator, and they will actually be the first ones to install a utility grade facility offshore on the US coast. Okay, so they're a US company. No, they're actually a partnership between two companies, and I don't remember which two off the top of my head. Okay. My apologies. No, that's okay. That's okay. It's pop quiz, so it's okay. Um, they're okay, but they're, they're, they're not U.S. companies, though? They have a, a U.S. subsidiary okay. Out, of, uh, okay. out of here, but, but they are owned by some of the others that I mentioned, Orsted, Equinor. Sure. Um, I don't remember which two exactly. Okay. No, I'm just curious if it's, you know. The second we get off this call, I will look it up, and, and I, won't, I won't, you won't catch me tongue-tied again on that one. No, that's okay. Cause I, no, I, I'm just, for, I'll tell you where my mind is, and I, you know, I don't want to editorialize, and I don't want to get upset, or I don't want to, you know, cause any issues or anything like that, but 
it just seems like, you know, over the last few years, there's been a lot of dollars and a lot of uh, energy directional to go towards, you know, the wind and, and et cetera. And then so hearing that, you know, all these companies are foreign companies and yet our government sending people to go there and it just, it's different. It almost seems like uh, Europe got a real big head start. They did for 20 years. <laughs> By 20 years, you know, they've been putting these things up in, in, uh, off of, uh, the United Kingdom, all the way around Ireland. There's, there's, I mean, they've, they've been doing this for 20 years. And there's been discussion about this in the United States since the mid 90s. But the problem we've had is really the way the country is set up. We have, um, the states control a certain portion of the waters off of their coast. You have the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management, BOEM and Bessie, which are federal institutions, control all of the international waters, if you will. They're also tasked with, you know, so the, the whole permitting process with having all of these competing interests has really slowed down the United States entry into the offshore wind industry. Is there is there any discussion about just doing a, you know, maritime law? I mean, they do it with banking. Why, why, why can't they do it with energy like that? Well, because the states own the waters for three miles out. In okay. So it's three miles. Okay. okay. Louisiana's 12, and that goes back to whoever planted a flag in the ground was from a country that had a 12-mile limit. I want to say France actually originally got uh, the Louisiana coast. So the Louisiana coast is a 12-mile limit. It's very, very difficult to understand. I'm curious what happened to France because they were part of the Alamo too, but they don't seem to have anything left in Texas. There's a little bit left in Louisiana, but <laughs> just anyway. Um, What's with the food? I, I know that's about it, you know, just kind of their, their, you know, the, the, the Creole slash uh, Benets and everything. They, they left a little bit of a French twist behind, but outside of that, certainly not much else. Right. Um, right. There's, a, there's a heavy French Cajun culture, if you will, but it's almost more uh, French Canadian than it is France, France, because well, most of the settlers came from, uh, from Canada. I was going to say, you know, uh, up in our neck of the woods, you know, Montreal, which is a little bit far away, but Canada, the, the language stuck around, <laughs> you know, just a little bit more than the food. Uh, so, okay, this is really, this is really interesting to me. So what you basically uh, transitioned because of the, you know, just the, the different workflow and the contracts and, 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 and just basically the way the market Shook out, huh? I mean, am I hearing that yeah, right? Yeah, you're absolutely right. You know, I mean, it, it was real obvious that the amount of money and the amount of daily utilization days on a offshore vessel each year were diminishing. And on the East Coast, they're appreciating. It's, you know, that, that industry is in its infancy. So we provide two different services, if you will. We, as a result of Gary's prior involvement in Block Island and the requisite use of the union labor, and there's, an all, there's also all kinds of 
local content criteria. It's almost like working in a foreign country in that regard. You know, when we go to Nigeria, we got to have 40 or 50% local labor, sometimes more than 50%. Guyana is the same way. Everywhere in the world I've ever worked except for the U.S. Now, when you work in New York, for instance, you've got to have a certain percentage of local content. Those people have to be union labor. So the first big milestone that we overcame with entry into the offshore wind market was the issuance of the one and only blanket union collective bargaining agreement that has been issued to date with all of the applicable labor unions. There's actually seven of them. Two of them are in process, but we have a, a five-party collective bargaining agreement that encompasses the carpenters union, which is also the, the, the pile drivers, the dock builders, and the commercial divers. We've got the commercial engineers, the laborers union, uh, International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers and the Brotherhood of Engineers, or it, it might not be Brotherhood, it's the, you, the the Engineers Union, if you will. So that was our first step. Since then, the Seafarers Union has come to us because we provide vessels. We have a fleet of 47 vessels that we offer to the offshore wind industry. Um, we, we also provide a lot of ancillary support, the commercial diving, uh, subsea robotics, um, all the sensors, uh, all kinds of tools for underwater, and the big construction vessels. So one of the things that has been a real key issue with the actual installation and construction beyond the labor is you have to use what are called Jones Act compliant vessels. And the Jones Act, which was enacted in 1920, is basically been around, the, the philosophy's been around since the Phoenician times. And what it does is it protects your domestic marine industry, shipbuilding, coastal trading, the coastwise trade aspect of moving products or people from one domestic port to another. That actually applies to the offshore wind industry. So you have to have a boat that was one built in the United States, two is owned and operated by a U.S. company, and three is staffed by U.S. personnel to work in the offshore wind industry by law. That doesn't mean they won't issue waivers, because as you mentioned previously, the Europeans are 20 years ahead of us. They've got a lot more of these vessels. Dominion Energy is building one, uh, Weeks Marine is building one, and then we also have a third that is kind of quasi-Jones Act compliant. And what I mean by that is it's owned and operated or will be owned and operated. We're in the, we're in the process of an acquisition on the boat. It's a 2014-built 460-foot vessel with bumps for 399 people. And it has a thousand ton Derrick crane on the back deck. We can never be fully Jones Act because it was actually built in the Marco Polo shipyard in Baton. But we can operate within the Jones Act because we're not going to transport anyone or any cargo from one U.S. port to another. All of that will be brought out by barges, tugboats, uh, supply boats, crew boats, helicopters. 
and then we will strictly work in the field doing the installation. You mentioned the labor, kind of the one-stop shop, if you will. I kind of joked one article I did the first year in the Bakken that uh, in North Dakota, you know, if you're a plumber, a pipe fitter, an electrician, you got to be certified by the by the state. So these people were called, I called them uh, uh, deities and demigods of the oil patch because, boy, these people were so sought after. And I there was a company out of Fargo, they had to stop sending people to the West because it was an electric company, electrician. The guy would go to dinner at night and he'd get hired by somebody out at dinner for double his salary. And the kicker is that the electrician, the, the energy or the electric company back in Fargo had to hire the guy back because there was such a shortage of these people. <laughs> so, um, that's interesting about what, what you guys have been able to put together. So, um, basically what you're saying is that as companies are starting to realize that the transition is, is, is happening, um, for people to find work that you guys are putting together this kind of system that's going to be able to make it a little bit more user-friendly for people to get work. Does that make sense as far as uh, disseminating jobs and et cetera? It is. Between the, the five unions that we have under our umbrella currently, and I'm not saying that there won't be another contract like ours issued. It just it took four years for this one yeah. to, to transpire, to get all of the unions in agreement with a contract that Gary would actually execute. Um, it's to get all of these people on the same page is very difficult. Now is just, is this just for New York or is there other States too? Like, I don't know. Does Ro- uh, does- no, it, it includes all of the Eastern seaboard. Okay. And that's why it was so difficult and why it took four years to, to impact, to, to, to get this contract done is because each state has their own criteria also. So if you're working in New York, you have to pay a welder, for instance, or an electrician, one rate. If you go to New Jersey, that rate changes. So every time you change, you go across the state line, you're actually running into all kinds of paperwork nightmares to, to try to figure out, okay, so this guy worked from midnight to six o'clock in the morning in New York waters. We, uh, we crossed over into New Jersey while we were installing this cable at six in the morning and he worked until noon. You know, that kind of thing. And when you, when you multiply that by maybe 300 people working on the back deck of a vessel, you know, it becomes a, a fairly onerous project just to track the paperwork to pay these people properly because all every state has got a different um, rate for these people, if you will. They make a different amount of money if they're in New York versus New Jersey, Rhode Island, Massachusetts, Virginia, whatever. Yeah, I can imagine just between the certifications and the fees and the different paperwork, that could take all kinds of time and then throw COVID in there. Boy, that's... Oh, yeah, COVID has become a... You know, I mean, you've got the... We haven't seen a lot of COVID criteria yet in the offshore wind. It'll happen. It's inevitable. No, I was just talking about from from the uh, bureaucrats blaming, you know, everything on COVID for not getting things done in a timely manner. That's all. That's all I'm oh, talking yeah, about. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 
but but that transposes into you know like when we work internationally and and even to some extent last year we were having to quarantine these people for seven days in a hotel by themselves prior to being able to go on a job um then they had to quarantine for seven days before they could go home and if they demonstrated any symptoms you know, it's 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 become a very very difficult issue to deal with, and a, a costly one because we have to charge for those people. I mean, they expect to get paid if they're not at home, and rightfully so. So we have to pass that cost on to our client, and they don't want to really eat at all. So you've got to negotiate with them individually on a case by case basis. You know, hey, I'll take half of it, you take half of it, kind of thing. This might be over your head, and I apologize, but. Just because of the complexity of international waters and state waters and international companies and local companies and state unions and I don't know if, you know, the old traditional movies are correct with unions or not, but you got some other entities that are in the shadow behind the scenes maybe too, so I don't know, but when it comes to... So okay, exactly. But 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 at the end of the day, what brings everybody together together is uh, who's getting paid. So, are are you guys using you know digital dollars? Is the import export bank involved? Does it funnel through the government and they pay you through subsidies? How how is everybody getting paid on this? I can answer part of that. Okay. Some of it is well beyond my, my, my area of knowledge. No, that's okay, because it's a very complicated question. I, I don't think people realize how complicated it is. So the state of New York, and I'll just use that as one instance, because I just read the contract here within the last matter of a few days, because we got a tender in. So unlike a traditional oil and gas tender, most of these people send out, their contract with the state of New Jersey, New York, Rhode Island, or whatever, when they send out a contract or a contract tender request, and you're expected to be in full compliance. So what happens is the state of New York contracts with an Orsted, a Dominion, a Vineyard, and they are, uh, uh, the Orsteds, the Vineyards, whatever, are expected to provide a kilowatt hour of electricity for a given price for a given period of time. So they're they're under long-term contract for the production of power for like a state utility commission. So on the, on the inverse side of that, you have all of these federal tax subsidies that are being paid and and it's actually impacted the installation schedules substantially. You have companies I'll use Atlantic Shores, which is one of the developments off of Massachusetts, northern Massachusetts, as an example. That company is not going to start their actual installation and construction until they receive all of their appropriate documentation on their federal tax subsidies. So instead of them starting construction this year, that particular project will actually be pushed back till next year. So, I mean, there's a tremendous amount of moving pieces. You know, you've got your state utility commission contracting with the developer, the Orsted, the Vineyard, the Atlantic Shores, to produce the energy. Then you've got the federal government is paying subsidies. 
And then you've got all of these other things moving at the state and at the federal level as far as the permitting and, the, you know, it's, it's very, very complex. And that's one of the reasons why instead of having wind energy off of our coast 20 years ago, it's taken until 2021 or 2015 before the first offshore installations were done and 2021 to 23 before we have an actual functioning utility grade uh, offshore wind component that, that's utility grade that can actually, you know, support an, a state grid. So you're, you're doing 20% oil and gas work, but it's primarily decommissioning offshore wells. Is that correct? Or pipelines. Or, pi- or pipelines. And, yeah, because a lot of times now they're actually required to remove the pipelines. Okay, okay. And um, and you said about eighty percent, and this is the last couple of years that this shift has happened. Where after how many years were you in oil and gas? Twenty nine. Yeah, yeah, thirty is just right around the corner. So third after thirty years of oil and gas, I mean, was this was this shift from you know a hundred percent of oil and gas to eighty twenty? Was that within a two year span? There was actually a decline that started post Deepwater Horizon, the Mocondo incident from BP. Um, things got a lot more difficult. They, they became a lot more onerous, and the regulatory bodies started looking a lot harder prior to the issuance of permits. And then we had the downturn of the industry that started in 2012, and to some extent is still ongoing. So it's, it's since 2012, we've seen the industry just continually diminish. It's funny you called 2012 the downturn. That's when it hit $100 oil. <laughs> yeah, but that was the peak. From there, it went downhill. No, I know. I've just never heard of it referred to that because I've always, you know, 2015 is what they call the downturn. And, um, you know, right around that time, end of 14 and into 16. But I, I remember... Oh, I did an article for one of the publications. I can't remember if it was the Bismarck Tribune or the Dickinson Press, maybe both. But I went to a conference, and this was in 2013, at the end of 2013, and the article was about how, well, the CEOs are done coming to the Bakken. Yeah, it's like a rare albino elk sighting now because, you know, it was over. You know, right. they, for a variety of reasons, the, the $100 oil was done. But the Bakken's a little bit different because um, for there, you know, they, they need to prove that the oil's there. They, they already knew it was there because of the science, but they needed that $100 oil to go drill a quick cap, you know, well and cap it and, and, and prove it. And then they got 20, 25 years to drill. So now it's just a commodities price game for, for out right. there. Uh, you know, when they, when they drill the exploratory wells, they're looking for proven reserves, right? Yeah, and, and because, you know, the, the, the library they have in the Bach, in the Laird Library, and every oil company's had to do a core sample since the 50s, um, you know, th- that sort of shared knowledge just allowed all these companies to know what was down there, but you still had to prove it. Yeah, you still had to physically prove it. Um, right. And, and, you know, when it hit $100 oil, they were able to do that, you know, out in, you know, Fortuna areas where you got to get to the, you know, $90 range. I think it's Fortuna. Uh, I apologize for, 
for not knowing my micro specifics of the dollar ranges out there in the Bakken at this point, because there's a pop quiz for me here too. So, hey, look at that. We both have pop quiz fails today, so that's okay. Uh, well, I was more curious about just how your transition went from the oil and gas to wind. It doesn't sound like it was political. It was more marketplace, and the marketplace was kind of driven by by regulations and subsidies. It really it, it has been, and yeah. you know the the behind the scenes planning and permitting and stuff is now just coming to a head. They've been working on this since the '90s, trying to figure out how do we put offshore wind off of the United States coast. You know, um, they got real serious about it in about 2005, and started doing some some planning and stuff. And I mean, that was long before I ever considered it as a business opportunity. I was still working for other people at the time. And, um, as Gary and I worked on various projects in 2017, 18, 19, we talked a little bit about it. It just became more apparent the more homework that I did on it, that this is truly the future of energy. And if you look at some of the books that were written by Michael Economides, who was a a uh, uh, University of Houston, um, what was he? He's a, he was an economist. He passed away on an airplane coming out of Javier or uh, Bush Airport in Houston, flying to D.C. in 2013. But he wrote some extremely good books about the global expansion of energy consumption. And how much more we're going to need every year as as some of these third world countries get into having electricity and running water and flush toilets and microwaves and motorcycles versus pedal bicycles. You know, there's a lot of parts of the world. We, we, Americans are spoiled at the end of the day, right? We, we've got things that they don't have in other parts of the world. But as these other parts of the world start to experience what it's like to have a toaster, what it's like to have not cook your dinner like they do in in uh, in Haiti on charcoal. Um, they get greedy for more. It's just human nature, you know. I mean, that's pretty cool. I didn't have to go buy charcoal today to cook dinner. You know, I've got I've got gas. I've got electricity, and I want more of it. You know, I want lights on instead of having to, to go to bed when it gets dark. And there's a lot of third world countries that just don't have that. And, and as they get just a little taste of it, they want more. And Michael, it was just a phenomenal, um, a lot of his books were just phenomenal. His talks were even better. How he delved into that and, and how the exponential growth of the energy industry is going to outpace even what oil and gas is available, how much oil and gas is available to produce this energy he predicted this way back in, you know, 09, 010. I, I, I listened to several of his talks and it really started making sense in 17, 18, talking with Gary about the Block Island project. As, as I learned more about offshore wind, it just became the no brainer. It, it, it was, to me, it was just a, you know, this is the next big thing. I remember when I saw the Super Bowl ad for, <laughs> I want to say it was Exxon. I believe it was Exxon that was doing so. doing the plankton 
like biofuel. Right. Yeah, and when I saw, I think that was like ten years ago. Now that I'm thinking about it, when when I saw that, that's when I I knew that oil and gas companies were going to be forced to just be an energy company. It was no longer you you, you can no longer be sustainable just doing oil and gas. It, they they were going to force you to just either do all the above because that was the term back then, all the above. Right. Yeah, and um, now, now I, I think that term's kind of passe. Um, there's some other terms they're using, and I forget the one that. Uh, oh, when the the energy secretary, who's the new energy secretary, um, Grisholm, is that her name? Yeah, yeah. When she did that, so. when she did that interview with the Washington Post, and they put the transcript up, and and she just flat out said, "Hey." get on board or go away and all of a sudden you know the api came out shortly after and said let's start having a public discussion about the uh, climate tax and climate pricing and yeah all the signs are there you know all the signs are are, are there you know and it's it's you know i i called this year the year that's going to be defined by defection and and the marketplace was part of the Part of it, and what you're telling me is exactly what I thought, which is the very sterile reality of just the way the manipulation of a marketplace can happen. And and manipulation is not meant to be a negative word, just an actual, just the way that it's being controlled. Now, the other side of it, of the defined by defection, and it doesn't sound like this is you, but maybe, I don't know, um, is the kind of the... the um, you know, big oil is the new big tobacco, if you will, kind of the modern day leper. And you know, it's 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 okay to socially shame oil and gas now. This you know, and that sort of thing. Um, I think that's part of it too. You know, when people are are getting shamed at parties and they're not making the six figures anymore, and John Kerry's saying, you know, go 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 build solar panels and that kind of stuff. I mean, that's that's tough to stay loyal to an industry. So um, I don't know. I don't know if you're following me at all, but I am. And, and, you know, my real, I knew I was doing the right thing. My, my kids, I have a daughter that turned 18 last week and she'll be going to college next year. She's got a free ride um, locally. And, um, when she started taking an interest in the renewable energy business, she's got a little bit of a, I'm not going to say leftist, but maybe a little bit of a liberal, a little bit left of center liberal outlook on things. And when she started looking at the things that we were doing and applauding it, there was no question in my mind that this was truly the future. And I mean, all the signs were there, but the social acceptance of it, it really came from my kids. Let me ask you a question. Um, sure. Well, because you've got, you know, 29 years in the industry, you've got to have some respect for the industry, I would imagine. A tremendous amount. Yeah. I've, I've, I've done very well. It's, it's been better to me than farming in the north part of the, of the, the country could have ever been to me. And, you know, you're, you're doing 80% wind, basically, 
Um, 20% oil and gas, and a lot of that was directed by the marketplace in the last couple of years. But you're also not blind to, you know, the, the, the trends that are out there and et cetera. <clears throat> how, can, how can the industry, and this is, by the way, no right or wrong answer to this because the industry has spent billions of dollars in the last 10 years, and we've gone from plastic bags and, and plastic straws, whether we should ban them or is paper or plastic better to the freaking president is issuing a war on oil and gas. So, I mean... Things are not going the direction that the money was spent for public relations in the industry, right? So how, how can we convince or connect and engage with people like your daughter? And I'm not saying your daughter has a dis- disdain or a despise against oil and gas, but so much of the you know, wind turbines and so much of the solar panels and so much of what we do on a daily basis is is fossil fuel related and petroleum. I mean, a lot of the wind turbine is made out of petroleum and Tesla's are too. How do we absolutely, get... Absolutely, absolutely. The, the copper and the transmission yeah. cables, what, what is that mined with? Totally. It's, it's mined with diesel operated caterpillar equipment, right? So how do we connect and get them to understand that, you know, we, we need a... You know, we are energy united front. A, more of a kumbaya than a, you know, it's all the only this kind or only that kind and, and that sort of thing, you know, is, I don't even know the answer, but is there a way to connect with these kids anymore? Or is just, just the horse too far out of the barn at this point? You know, I honestly don't know the answer to that, but what I, I personally believe, if you look at the United States, you know, we're the, the administration in Washington has got this big push for renewables and that's great because Oil and gas can't pr- produce all of the energy that's going to be needed in 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, right? But on the inverse side of that coin, does it really do the globe any good for us to quit trying to use hydrocarbons when you have places like China that are going to install 5,000 new coal-fired electrical plants? in the next 10 years you know what's the it, to me it doesn't make any sense well that's what i'm wondering is that is that where we're gonna go is are we gonna wage war on china because they are using coal to stay warm i don't know i mean, you know, I, mean, I, mean I, I know it's, it's ridiculous you know, there's, there's an awful lot of politicking behind that right well it's a ridiculous question but i mean if they're forcing a country you know that they can only use their toaster on tuesday because it's bad for the environment and climate change and another country is just firing up coal plants i mean pr- pretty soon somebody's going to say well i want to use my toaster three times a week now Right. <laughs> and by the way, that's exactly. America is the one that can only use the toaster a few times a week. Well, I'm just curious about the climate czar and the climate envoy and what direction they're going, you know? You know, I don't think personally that we have the influences in other parts of the world that we can truly make a difference. When you have every country acting as its own sovereign, if you will. Mm-hmm. Well, as much as I don't like the idea of one global government, I think that's what it would take to well, truly that's make a difference. The, that's the um, 
that's been the conspiracy theory and ever since, you know, Earth Day first came around and, you know, right. as that eventually, you know, the United Nations is going to take over the military and force everybody through the act of, well, back then I think it was global warming is what it started as. Something yeah. Like that. Yeah, but because the environment is the one thing that we all share. You know, we all share that because, and it's very easy to connect with the environment. I mean, you walk sure. outside and you can connect and you got great memories and, you know, even from the, you know, I, I grew up Catholic and I was an altar boy, a Sunday school teacher. I went to Catholic school and so I was spoon- Our kids are in Catholic school. <laughs> yeah, so, <laughs> so, so, so you know me, I was spoon-fed fear and guilt my whole life, right? Just kidding. Right. <laughs> That's my Catholic joke. And, um, but when, when I look at, you know, just even original sin from the whole, you know, we, we've destroyed the planet, so we got to feel guilty about it. Just this whole movement, it's, it's all there. Uh, it's it's interesting, you know. I mean, right. pe- people can call it a conspiracy, or they can call it real, or they can call it just you know evolution. But it's just it's there. <laughs> I mean, right. it's it ha- it's happening. <laughs> oh yeah, it's 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 on in color every day at six. Well, like I said, in the last ten years, when you take a look at when I grew up, and you when when you got into the industries in the nineties, right? That's when I was yep. graduating high school. The only thing oil and gas ever came up with was the Exxon Valdez oil spill and gas prices. And that's it. Never any problems. And then in the 2000s, you started with plastic bags because of the litter. It was more about the litter than it was about the plastic bags. And the same thing with the straws. It was more about the litter than it was about the plastic straws. But either well, way, the fact that they don't that they don't degrade. Well, yeah, like, but yeah, you but, know, it's that paper sack. Totally, but then they found out paper was was worse than plastic because of the logging and the amount of diesel it takes right. and blah 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 right. and and but either way, and you know, in the in the nineties or I'm sorry, in the two thousands, it was basically that. Well, then in the last ten years, we've gone from Elizabeth Warren to Bernie Sanders to AOC to the Green New Deal to where. Like I said, Biden is issuing executive orders. That's amazing. In 20 years of just of gas prices was the only issue to now there's this. I'm just, I'm blown away by such a thing. So. And, and you know, when I had to pay for heating oil in Minnesota as a young adult and gasoline and oil and oil changes and tires and all this other stuff that comes from hydrocarbons, it used to trouble me, and and you you might find this hilarious, but when my parents complain about that, they still live in Roseau. My dad retired from Marvin's. He worked at Marvin's and Polaris most of his adult life. I tell them, "Hey, ain't it great? Gas is four bucks a gallon. We're making money again." You know, and I'm dead serious, and they're dead serious. You know, we're on we're our thought processes are on on two different sides of the coin, right? Absolutely. You know, they're, they're trying to live on a on a fixed income in retirement, and I'm just trying to feed my family and keep them in Catholic school long enough to get them into college, you know? Right, and, you know, natural gas, that's interesting, too, because, you know, uh, up up in your parents' part of the world, I imagine XL Energy is who they have? Um, they have an independent uh, cooperative. Oh, sure, uh, the, okay. No, I... Know, so, actually. I I had one for a while too when I was rural outside of Fargo Moorhead. Um, we were as a Halstead cooperative. So the, but um, at any rate, there was you know all those tax credits and the government basically forced 
everybody in one step or another to uh, do a gas furnace up here. And, Absolutely. And so it's funny, you know, when, when gas prices go from, you know, a buck to two bucks to all of a sudden eight bucks, holy smoke, somebody on a fixed income, that's tough. Absolutely. And Absolutely. Of course, the oil and gas companies are like, finally, some money we're making to natural gas after losing our tail for 10 years. <laughs> it's, Absolutely. It's, and, and, you know, it takes an Exxon or a Chevron, a Shell, somebody like that. It takes them at least $60, $65 a barrel to actually break even between the time you figure the exploration of the building of the production infrastructure and, and everything that goes with that. And, you know, when we were in the, what, 2005, 2000, right up until the, the, the BP spill, we were actually, they were making money, we were making money. It wasn't perfect, but if you take a smaller company that buys these divestitures, when, when Shell and Chevron gets done with, with these properties, when they start to become what they call a marginal property, they can make money, you know, somebody like maybe a Walter Oil and Gas or, or somebody like that. They can make money at substantially less, maybe 40 or $50 a barrel. And it, and it's, it's really interesting from my perspective to look at that. You know, a smaller company, they've got a smaller overhead. They've got less personnel. They've got less money tied up in exploration. They take these divestiture packages from the BPs and the shells of the world. And they do a little work over on the well and spend a couple million dollars. And all of a sudden, this thing's producing real well again. And But it, it's always been interesting to me where the oil had to be at for each of these companies to actually be, be profitable. Yeah. Hmm. And and that is, I imagine, changed in the last couple of years, too, with new regulations. dramatically. New regulations they, they the, and everything, yeah. Well, and they beat the contractors up. Last year, several of them, Marine Energy being one of them, came back to the contractors because most of them ended up in bankruptcy Yeah, with COVID. And um, they were asking their contractors to take a 20 to 30% cut, and there was no money to cut because they were already operating at rock bottom. Yeah, I've heard a lot of stories about the operators asking their supply chain and then turn around and file bankruptcy or get sold out or get bought out and then they you know grandfather in those new cut contracts and all these other things and so it's it's been tough over there for the past couple of years for a lot of a lot of the supply chain been very tough very tough oh it has been absolutely yeah so okay um kind of looking at the time you're wrapping up you know, make sure you give your company a plug again, but just kind of, you know, most of our audience is oil and gas. So, you know, what, what message, you know, you want people to walk away from and, and, and how can people utilize your business? Well, we, Blue Boat Subsea, one of the companies that, that, that I have ownership in is a primarily a renewables energy service provider. Um, we provide both vessels for the offshore construction, maintenance, and operation of offshore wind turbine facilities. But we do about 20% of our business in the global oil and gas segment also. Um, we're here. We're, we're always available. Most people in various parts of the world I know myself or my business partner, Gary Wilmore. And, um, you know, we have in the last year really embraced the renewables because we see it as the future. 
I, with what I know of the overall energy sector, the use of oil and gas is um, been on an increase ever since we first drilled our first oil well and um, offshore in South Louisiana, South Louisiana swamps in the early 1900s. You know, as, as everybody that uses oil and gas continually uses more oil and gas. And at some point, there's just not enough of it. So that's one of the reasons that we embrace the renewables. We, we see the global exponential growth of consumption not being able to be satisfied by just oil and gas. And that's why we embraced the renewables and the, the offshore wind as we have. It's um, To us, it's helping to supply uh, a large part of the future energy segment and the, the consumption of the United States, especially in the larger metropolitan areas that don't have oil wells in their backyard. The only thing that is available are wind turbines or, or other forms of renewable energy yet to be developed. Exclusive interview industry news, environmental innovation at thecrudelife.com. Music heard on the Crude Life Morning Show, Play Hard, Work Hard, is by the Moody River Band. Interested in becoming a sponsor? Email studio at thecrudelife.com. The Crude Life, Play Hard, Work Hard, is sponsored in part by Great American Mining monetizes wasted, stranded, and undervalued gas throughout the oil and gas industry by using it as a power generation source for Bitcoin mining. Great American Mining Company brings the market and their expertise to the molecule. Their solutions make producers more efficient and profitable while helping reduce flaring and venting throughout the oil and gas value chain. And if you're a mineral owner, check out how much Bitcoin you could be making right now with your valued gas. Go to gam.ai. That's Great American Mining, gam.ai. The Crude Life with host Jason Speaks. My name is Jason Spees, and this is the Crude Life Daily Update. On today's episode, we talk with Lynn Helms, the director for the North Dakota Mineral Resources, and today's interview is conducted by Crude Life content correspondent Jenica Hauser. So um, one, one of the things about a carbon tax is it's, it's sort of, uh, uh, what do I want to say, it's retroactive and it's punitive uh, in that it takes capital away from the companies. We think a, a better approach is to partner with the industries that are already working on this and successful uh, to some measure and you know provide grant money and encourage capital investment into these kind of technologies as opposed to taxing people for not using the technologies. It, it takes a lot of capital to do one of these things. Um, 
a billion dollars worth of capital to capture the CO2 off a coal-fired power plant and, and deliver it to an oil field. And so if, if you tax them, uh, I guess, you know, that's a stick, and, and you can, you know, punish them for not doing that. Yeah. North Dakota's approach, on the other hand, is to take earnings from the legacy fund and partner with them in loaning them money at low interest and in investing in research on ways to do it economically uh, so, so that they'll have a, a different reason and a different driver for doing it. To listen to the full-length interview with Lynn Helms, director for the North Dakota Mineral Resources, or to check out other exclusive interviews, visit thecrudelife.com. That's thecrudelife.com. The Crude Life promotes a culture of inclusion and respect through interviews, content creation, live events, partnerships that educate, enrich, and empower people to create a positive social environment for all, regardless of age, race, religion, sexual orientation, physical, or intellectual ability. Everyday energy for everyday people. For more, visit thecrudelife.com. From the staff here at the Crude Life Daily Update, my name is Jason Spies, asking you to always remember, energy is more than an industry, it's a way of life. The Crude Life is sponsored in part by... For more than 100 years, First International Bank and Trust has been headquartered in western North Dakota, home of the Bakken. Our proven record of mineral management, appraisal, and brokerage services is now enhanced by the only Bakken-specific software, Mineral Tracker. Trust First International Mineral and Land Services and Mineral Tracker to protect your interests and help build and preserve a financial legacy for generations to come. It takes an industry to build a forest. Did you know about half the trees planted in the last 20 to 30 years have died within the first year? Lack of watering, transplant shock, special interest groups, poor growing conditions are just a few reasons it takes an industry to build a forest, and that is exactly what the industrial forest does. Sustainability sheds, critical pipeline systems are implemented to ensure the forest survives and absorbs carbon for decades to come. It takes an industry to build a forest. If you're interested in sustainable forests, growing industry jobs, check out theindustrialforest.com. That's theindustrialforest.com. I was in Tioga yesterday. I saw a new billion-dollar gas plant commissioned. So the Tioga gas plant is up and running. Here we go! I think it's huge. Governor Downrimple says it best, that value-added agriculture is a big part of the North Dakota's past, and it's a big part of today, and it'll be a big part of tomorrow. The petrochemical industry itself is forecast to uh, add about $30 billion of capacity expansion here in the U.S. to get access to that natural gas and convert it into plastics. So it's a big deal here. This whole natural gas shell play has changed the country's view of natural gas as a sustainable, uh, reliable energy source and really changed the entire dynamic of uh, the United States. Well, natural gas is really the, the game changer in terms of its impact on the electric industry. Just in this past year, uh, we financed over $500 million uh, into North Dakota projects, uh, about 60% of that uh, into the 19 oil and gas producing counties.
What's happening with natural gas is exciting and I think it's a wonderful opportunity for growth. The cost of the gas out just right out of our line that feeds our shop equates to about 70 cents a gallon equivalent. So that's really, you know, as a small company, you know, trying to grow, that's how we're funding the vehicle conversions, the, the fueling station, etc. We're fueling that with our funding that with our fuel savings. tremendous results from companies like Swift Trucking and Central Freight Lines, major companies like Frito-Lay and Dark Transportation, who have made major commitments to convert a large number of vehicles who are buying the engines currently available in a 12-liter engine. And uh, we're seeing the trucking industry really take hold of this, and it's uh, saving them money. producing over a billion cubic feet of natural gas a day and it is the richest natural gas on the planet. It contains more ethane and propane than, than any other gas uh, that people are processing. So we've reached that critical mass now. if not more important, is the fact that we now have an abundant, lower-cost natural gas supply thanks to horizontal drilling and hydraulic fracturing, which has produced a gas resource that um, we wouldn't have imagined uh, a generation ago. We're hearing about BNSF saying they want to do a, a major conversion plant to convert their train engines to, to liquefied natural gas in North Dakota. It's not only about jobs growing the economy and good for the environment, right, capturing that gas. It's a national security issue for us, but also working with our allies in Europe to counteract what Putin's doing. So this shows the global reach of North Dakota. Exclusive interview industry news, environmental innovation at thecrudelife.com.